Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, all of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift, this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com. If you uh, listen to the Meat Eater podcast, and obviously you do because here you are listening to it, or watch the show Meat Eater on Netflix, you have seen and kind of met our buddy Remy Warren, who is, I'll say, I've said it before and I'll say it again, one of the most just skilled, accomplished hunters I've ever had the pleasure of spending time out in the woods with. We are launching a new podcast with Remy called Cutting the Distance. And in Cutting the Distance, it's not like a conversational show. Cutting the Distance is an educational show where Remy walks you through situations and scenarios from his life and gives you like actionable, usable information, instruction, intelligence, inspiration about how to become a better hunter. And there's no one more suited to give you this information than Remy Warren. So go find it, Cutting the Distance, the same place as you can find the Meat Eater podcast. Give it a listen. Give it a review. Cutting the Distance with Remy Warren. This is the Meat Eater podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Uh, Jesse Griffith, are you interested? Um, you okay if we talk about uh, death, death, fo- dead folks for a minute? Sure. You don't mind starting out that way? I, I, oh, that's it's <laughs> nice. It's it's a good icebreaker. We're sitting here in your restaurant. Tell yeah. people where we are. Uh, we're in uh, we're on the east side of Austin, Texas, at Daidue, uh early in the morning, just about to uh, get ready for lunch service. About so you, to talk about death. Tell people about uh, the name Daidue. Daidue is uh, and how you kind of regret it. Uh, yeah, it's it's part of a <laughs> uh, no it's spot on part of an Italian proverb um, that means from the two kingdoms of nature, choose food with care. 
I saw it in a book a long That's time ago. That's good, though, man. I would have just named the damn restaurant that. The whole, well, in Italian, I should have just done the whole thing and insisted that everybody always say the entire <laughs> name every time. Yeah. Um, no, I just didn't, done it in English. Oh. Tell me the title again. From the Two Kingdoms of Nature, Choose Food with Care. Oh, it's good. Yeah. yeah. They mean plant and animal. That, see, that's contentious. Oh, because that's what I would take it to mean nowadays. Yeah, it could be land at sea, could be plant and animal. It wasn't specified in the book. I mean, I, like, I kind of like that ambiguity, too. Um, when did you stumble across that? Oh, years ago. You look yeah. real Italian. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, jo- I'm joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't look remotely Italian. No, no, no. You look all. like a Scotsman. Welsh. 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 Okay. Yeah. A Welshman? A Welshman. Uh, yeah, to, to be clear. I'm a Welshman that owns a restaurant with an Italian name that serves mostly Mexican and German food. <laughs> the old Mexican German? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that, we came across that and uh, I, I really liked it and uh, settled on that for name of that hypothetical restaurant that I wanted to always own and then I, I stuck to it. So, we got corrected. Sure, everybody does. Uh, I mean, politely, I here hope. in the capital city of Texas, we mentioned to a press officer. Oh. Is that, isn't that who squared What were we calling yeah. it? We were calling it Died Dway? I guess, yeah. And he said, you say it again? Died Dway. Yeah, that's yeah, it was right. A slight, it was a slight Dewey. correction. It's a slight correction. You pronounce it like my mom does to this day. Your mom doesn't know how to say it? She's going to listen to this, so I'm going to say <laughs> she just says it her own way. Got it. Okay, uh, on to the sobering stories I was going to tell you about. We... uh. Just to bring you up to speed, I know you're a busy man. We did a podcast recently with uh, our good friend Pat Durkin, and Pat Durkin is a he's a great admirer of obituaries of hunters, and he was telling us about this obituary he read where a guy had died hunting, and in the obituary that said that it was. An otherwise successful hunt. <laughs> but this guy wrote it with this, it's kind of this crazy story where he, he said his dad, like this guy, he's in New York, and he said his dad had always joked that if he can ever get a 10 point buck, he, he knows he'll die. Like his death prophecy was he'll shoot a 10 point and die. So one day he's hunting and shoots a buck and walks over there and counts, and there's 10 points. And he stands up and he thinks to himself, oh boy, now it will come. But nothing happens. And he lives. And his kids had always joked when he made his prophecy that he would kill a 10-point buck and die. His kids always joked that we're going to drag the buck out of the woods and then we'll come back and get you. Eight years goes by from when he gets a 10-point. And they're all out hunting in the woods. Their mother's there. Kids are there, dad's there, and they're checking in with dad on the radio. The dad shoots. Um, they check in. He's got one. They're going to check back in a little bit. And eventually, he keeps trying to get his dad on the radio. But he can't raise him. So he eventually walks over and finds his dad laying, sitting against a tree, stone dead. Just like a heart attack, just killed him calls the mom and brother everybody comes over to the tree and they have a big cry then they're trying to figure out because he did shoot and they go find where he had shot a buck and it was an eight point buck and he shot an eight point buck had dragged it a little ways had gutted it 
Must have not been feeling good. Went back and sat against his tree and expired. And they called the medical, you know, called 911 and everything. And they came out and they were going to load him on this little gurney thing to carry him out of there. And the kids grabbed the buck and they said they had the buck back to the truck before dad was. It's a good story. It's a good story. You like that one, Yanni? I do. You uh, left out that little detail about where he drug it from. Did you do that purposely? No, tell me. About how it was on the neighbors. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I read the email. Oh, he drug it off the neighbors? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even remember that part. So I sort of, in, in my mind, I, I was kept thinking, like, it wasn't really, like, shooting the buck that did it. It's it a was, long email. I'm trying to. It, it was the fact that he had, like, shot it on the neighbors just slightly. Because remember, he goes, the son goes and kind of backtracks. Because I think he ends up finding the, the heart and the liver, maybe. Um, anyways, he backtracks and he goes, oh, he shot it just onto the neighbors. Oh, no, so, no, you're confusing another story the same dude told. I'm going to come back to that story because this tells the character of his old man. But go ahead. No, I know. Okay. But that, no, that was a whole other story. Right, about the hearts and the livers it was. Yeah. But he still backtracked his dad's dying buck to the neighbors. Oh. And so I felt like it wasn't really necessarily just the killing the buck. It was the fact that like it was on the neighbors, and all of a sudden there had to be this great, um, uh, this excitement and you know exertion of quickly dragging it you know under over a fence, and you know if you're not used to doing that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, he said backtrack, I head down the hill and find a blood trail. I take it to where I can see where the deer had fallen about 40 yards onto the neighboring property. I see where the buck had been dragged, guts in, up a steep hill to our side of the property line. There it was gutted. Here's the thing that speaks to the character of his old man. He says he's out hunting with his old man, and they're hunting just north of Syracuse. And uh, they're out in the woods. He's 12, even though he wasn't supposed to be hunting at that age. And he hears a shot behind him. His dad's sitting somewhere. He's sitting here. And the kid, the guy that's writing in, hears a shot, bam, behind him. And he gets cold and wants to wander around, so he goes back to investigate what happened at the shot and realizes the guy had gutted a deer um, and left the heart and liver. So he takes the heart out of the gut pile and later winds up back at the truck to meet up with his dad. And his dad explains, you know, I found some gut pile and the guy only took the heart, so I grabbed the liver. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, another dude wrote in. Hold on, let me check this one real quick. Here's another one about guys dying. This kid, his uncle's got type 1 diabetes and dies from complications of type 1 diabetes. And he had had the lower part of his right leg amputated at the knee down. Did I make clear that this is his kid's uncle? No. There's a hunter, there's a dude, okay? There's this mug who's a kid, kiddish. His uncle dies. His uncle dies of complications from type 1 diabetes. And not only that, but in his struggles with the disease, had had his right leg removed from the knee down. Okay. He dies a few days before deer opener. They have the wake on the opener. So he can't go out hunting in the morning. Gets through the funeral deal, runs out to go hunting, 
here comes a nice buck, shoots the buck, buck falls over, and he comes down and realizes that the buck is missing from the knee down of the leg. That's, um, that's bizarre. Yeah. I think that he speaks to Yanni because Yanni believes in like summoning stuff and whatnot. That he summoned a three-legged uh, deer? I also believe just in <laughs> amazing coincidence. <laughs> You're comfortable with amazing coincidence? Yeah. Yeah, can we, should we get into the corner crossing thing? Because this has been, uh, sorry to be taking up all your time here, Jesse. <laughs> You're not taking up my time. <laughs> it's all right. Um, are, are there no more stories about death? No, I got more. Oh. But one's too sad. I'll tell you. No, then no, not, we'll no, talk no. about corner. No, I'm going to tell you the super sad one. It's just like, but it's, it's like, it's almost like you shouldn't even bring it up. Well, maybe you shouldn't. Really? You want to hear a quick one where uh, no one dies? Yes. But there's an injury? Fine. <laughs> Not a bad injury. Great. I was sharing a story about my brother-in-law. You familiar with uh, barefoot skiing? You a skier? How old are you? I'm not a skier. But you remember when people used to water ski a lot before they all started wakeboarding? Yes, I do. And you, are you familiar with barefoot skiing? I, no, but if I've I say, gathered, hey, man, we were out barefooting for the weekend. No, I'd have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> skiing with no skis. Okay. Just standing there barefoot. This is not something I ever learned how to do nor tried. Snow skiing. No, man. Water skiing water with, no skiing skis. with no skis. Okay. So, like, my brother-in-law used to be into this. He, you, lay, you put a wetsuit on, and you lay it on your back in the water. And you got the rope and the ski handle, rope handle in your hands. And you take your bare feet and imagine, like, you're stretched out. Mm-hmm. Feet toward the boat. And you take your feet and, and you're like holding a rope between your feet. And you angle your toes like a little ramp. And the boat just, there he goes, takes off. And you eventually get where you're skimming along the water surface. Then in a dramatic move, you spring up. And then you're skiing with no skis. Just toes curled up hauling ass you gotta be going fast to yeah, get that kind you gotta of go fast am i mistaken that you gotta go like uh i'm not gonna know the speed 36 or something like that and people a lot of people ski at 25 or something either way you're hauling ass well my brother-in-law i was telling about on this here uh digital radio program my brother-in-law whap hits a sunning bluegill and drove the dorsal fin up into his foot Oh, God. And had to have it surgically removed. Well, this guy is writing in. They used to have this big high dive. (laughs) You see where this is going? Yeah. What fish? Just. (laughs) I feel like he hit a yellow perch. Yeah. Yeah. Hit a yellow perch, drove the dorsal fin up into his foot. Took him a while to figure out what happened. No, no, no. Not his foot. His head. His head. He dove. Oh. He dove. And at first, he thought he had just opened up his yeah, hands. Why do I, if I'm bringing it up, why don't you bring up the damn stories? You know them so well. well I, told, I just told you. I had, they're all sitting in a stack. I'll print it out, highlighted and shit on my desk. But I didn't know that we were doing this thing at Die Due. If you're like Joe, story the dudes wrote <laughs> in about, tell the damn stories. Hits in his head. That's why he calls his, his email. It's called a Bluegill Top Fin Story Topper. Maybe. <laughs> it's 
It's pretty good. It's good, but it's not as good as mine. His isn't as good as mine. Well, yeah, His is better because it happened to him. That helps. Mine just happened to my brother-in-law, and I wasn't even there. But mine's better. Something about barefoot skiing makes it better. That, or maybe that it had to be surgically removed. This guy's dad, I think, just got it out with a pair of pliers or something. You're right. Needle those pliers. What else we got? You got one more second? Yeah. Let's see if I know this next one. You don't. <laughs> you don't. One last one. This is, this is going to be... Are you ready for a touching one? Is it injury or death? No, it's just that someone wanted me to say hi to his kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're saying hi to a little kid named Mac McDonald. Mac McDonald. Mac McDonald, nine years old, likes to hunt deer. Okay, ready? Tell people what you're going to do tonight. I'm going flounder gigging tonight. Talk about that for a minute, because that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's probably my favorite uh, outdoor activity, if I had to name one, because it's, it's, uh, it's fish hunting, I think. Go out in a boat. Uh, it's got a big bank of lights on the front. You can go out, uh, ride at dark. You get there when it's uh, as, just as the sun's going down. You put the lights out, and you start cruising around in about... Do you mind sharing with people uh, what state this occurs in? Oh, this is Texas. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to be in the Rockport area. A lot of flounder gigging happens on the Middle Coast, kind of that Rockport. Um, and that's the Gulf of... Pass. Gulf of Mexico. Gulf, Gulf of Mexico. Mexico. Well, it's the, it's, yeah, it's on the bay side. And so there's, uh, it's on the bay side of the barrier islands uh, in there. You, you don't do it out in the Gulf, per se, but like in the, gotcha. in the bays. And uh, go out there and just cruise around till you see uh, a flounder that's uh, kind of buried itself in the, in the sand or in the oyster shell. Uh, and you just look for a flounder shape. And after a while, you get good at spotting it. It's like, you know, it's like spotting anything like a morel or a, or a blackberry, you know, when it takes you a minute to... That's funny. Steve was just writing some voiceover for a show about sight image. Sight image and he used, he used the... Uh, the morel analogy. Exa- example. Yeah. Well, once you see one, then you see more. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... That, not the other day. The other day I saw one. Wham! And then never find the second one, man. There's really? always a second one. Huh. Yeah. But go on. Well, I mean, you, you, it's the same thing. You just, you're looking for that shape. Um, I mean, there's some false alarms, and sometimes they're really buried in there. But then you have a, a and long. You're in an airboat. Yeah, you're in an airboat. The only, the only downside of the whole thing, that, that the only thing that I don't really enjoy is the noise from the airboat. Oh, it drives me nuts, man. Yeah. You, it, you wear ear pro, right? No, it's not you that don't. loud. Oh. It, it's just an, it's an annoyance. But it's so beautiful with the, I mean, the clear water, and you see all the sea life. You see there's blue crabs and stingrays and redfish and drum and sheep's head and mullet. And, Can you screw the mullet? Uh, you know, there's certain months that you can't. Um, I have. Um, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations is up on that one. So You got some I, big I ass. I was just fishing down out of Rockport yeah. for redfish. Yeah, oh, there's some big mullet down there. You no, I, I, some freaking giant mullet were to the point where I would see him up ahead and think I was looking at a redfish coming our way. Right. Yeah, that's some big like ones. Throwing a wake and shit, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I, I stuck a mullet and we uh, and we, we filleted it and smoked it. It's actually pretty good because most of the, that's one of those trash fish they'll tell you you can't eat. Uh, we also you talking like white mullet? Is that, is, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Jumping mullet, they call them. Don't yeah. They? Yeah. yeah. Me and my brother Danny's when we when we used to backpack in Mexico fishing a lot, we would catch them just to eat them. 
cook them on a campfire, you know. Yeah, they're fine. Yeah, they're fine. And gar too. Will when we've gigged up in the up way into the Colorado River, from the bay up into the river, and you'll see a lot of gar up there, and we've gigged those as well. Uh, I want to talk more about the flounder gigging, but why? Uh, why? Why do some guys use? Why don't people use bow rigs, bow fishing rigs? You can absolutely yeah. is, is a gig more effective i think it is i mean the guides probably prefer that i mean that's just you spend less what, time chasing arrows and shit yeah, you know what they do and because when you're moving in an airboat what we found with bows is you shoot and then you immediately go over the right and then your things your arrows stuck in the bottom of the damn lake right the boats 50 yards down there not that far but you know yeah We're this is less efficient Moving yeah. pretty slow in this boat, and uh, he he carries the the captain carries a gig with him up in the front of the boat. When he sees a flounder, he drives it into the ground and stops that boat and That's anchors a good it trick, up man. real quick. And just I mean, you just come to an immediate and harsh stop, and then he points and you gig. Sometimes you can't see it, and he's just like, "It's right there." You're like where? And uh, I mean, and then you'll and it'll just like it'll it'll just appear, um, and then you gig it, and you have like a real kind of graceful swooping motion to get it back into the boat into a big metal box and then get the gig off and then keep going after them and it's just it's a lot of fun i mean and it's a limit of five fish five per person what's and a big one a big one is i i mean I, I think a big flounder is over 16 inches i mean people might disagree with that but that's i mean that's a sizable flounder um a really big one is you know three or four pounds pushing you know 20 plus inches and uh biggest one I've ever gigged was eight and a half pounds, and it was I don't remember the length, but probably the twenty six inch range it was a monster. Are you um reluctant to share the name of the guy you like to go with for fear that he will become overbooked yeah. and you will have a hard time getting a slot? Or it's are a, you generous? Or are you right. so generous? I'm I'm generous, and but I'm and I've named him before, and, and don't, I, I'm not telling you I don't I don't want you to name him because I might go with him. I'm getting mixed. I'm getting mixed signals here. Let, you know, Yanni's the fairest person I know. Ask Yanni. Yanni. Oh, well, what, what about this? I have a suggestion. Yeah. I mean, Yanni's the most reasonable, fairest person I've ever met. What if? Wow, thanks. We go flounder gigging with said captain, and then after that, you release the name of this captain. I like it. You mean like we, as in the people here at this table? Yeah. You mean you and your daughter tonight? Yeah, it's me and my daughter tonight. Oh, well, he's not gonna. He's yeah. not gonna like. Nothing's gonna change. Nothing's in the next gonna change hours. tonight. He's not gonna cancel you to take some other hoser. Who no, is- I know that. I'm thinking into the future. I am. I mean, but it, it, he's he is booked solid, and he also does late yeah, trips. It sounds like he couldn't be any busier anyway. Yeah, but what are you gonna Unless do he added a boat. when he catches wind? What if he catches wind that you did not name. were presented with an oh. opportunity to plug his business and declined? <laughs> I'm. I'm I'm not only getting mixed signals now, I'm starting to feel trapped. Well, what I would do is I would say this. I would say, uh, you should say this. Say, over the years of fishing with this gentleman, I've developed a deep love for him and concern for him. And since I can't vet and control the kind of riffraff that might come and book a trip with him (laughs) and potentially put him in a compromising situation, I wouldn't want to do this because what I rather do is spend time hand-picking clients that I send his way who I know are good tippers. Oh, he, he'll, if he heard that, he'd know I was full of shit. So, <laughs> it doesn't matter, so. so you're not going to say that? 
Let's not name them. Because I want to go. I was just about After to name I go, him. Oh, you were. I was. Yeah. Plus, I want Yanni to decide. His, no, you got to do you name him because the name of his charter service is so good. It's a good hint. It's uh, Captain David Dupnik with Surrender at Sunrise out of Rans's Pass. No, that's not it. Surrender at Sunrise. Surrender at Sunrise. I don't think you should have done that, man. <laughs> Come on. I think it's okay. Like I mean, I said, I, I Jesse have. was just telling me, man, the guy only takes off, only doesn't work in November, and that's because gigging season's closed. He works every other day of the year. So. And he takes two trips a night. He'll take a late trip tonight. Like when we get back, he has people on call, and they'll show up at midnight and go back out, and he'll take two trips. He's a maniac. But here's the deal. When you and me go down there to go do this, which we're going to do, um... Is he going to give whoever he's got lined up? Is he going to boot him? No. To make room for us? Well, I mean, I actually I can't speak for him, but I doubt that. We're going to have to let's just we're going to have to book a little further in advance now. Even though he's going to know that we sent a ton of business his way. It's the right thing to do. Okay. Yanni was right. Uh, he always gets his limit. Uh, yes. <laughs> he doesn't like to go home. No. No, he doesn't like to go it, surrender at sunrise. Yeah, he doesn't like to go home until he gets his limit, and he's adamant about it, and he's, he is good at it. I call him the human egret. The man can see <laughs> a fish in the mud, uh, you know, 15 feet to your left, and you're standing to his left. It's, it's uncanny. And that big flounder that I, that I gigged, I'm not going to say I saw, he said it was so buried in the sand that all he saw, and this was in, a, this was in December, during a cold front and we were in deep water probably two to three feet of water um and it was windy and he said all he could see were the eyes and he could tell <laughs> from how far apart those eyes were that, that was a big flounder but he he told me that i mean so it's, it's it's real he said that is a big flounder and i looked down all i saw was white sand and waves and he just grabbed the gig and said push down here <laughs> so, I mean, my, my big trophy flounder was more of just like me um applying gravity to a pole that's, and, uh, that's what we laugh about with guides and clients it's like yeah there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of guide client situations where the guy would have honestly done a lot better oh had oh, the client yeah. not been oh, there yeah. <laughs> like uh, oh my god you're adding nothing yeah <laughs> you're yeah. detracting yeah, that's like, like a contracting joke i remember someone said once is um in describing a bad employee, he said, having that guy here is like losing two good guys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> oh. Uh, I'm sure that probably comes up every now and then in the kitchen. So yeah. that, um, did you feel you were described that way when you went back when you were long tall Yanni? Did no. You, know, you used to be a kitchen no, man? No, no. I feel like I did a good job. <laughs> he was, I, he I was, hustled. He was a kitchen man. And he, uh, they called him Long Tong Yanni because he had some apparently a <laughs> set of long tongs that he used while working the grill. Well, that's you're working smarter. Why would you get your hands all hot and burned? You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, you use, use a longer tong. I mean, it's not like ridiculously long, just like you're, you're tell us about the tong. I'm trying to think what's the standard is probably like an eight inch tong, right? Uh, maybe 12. And you're probably talking about those 18 inch. Like yeah, long tongs. Yeah, because that grill was deep and it was tall. It had like the uh, the <laughs> oh, refrigerated man, sliders underneath it, you know. Yeah. So even with my height, you know, when you'd reach over it, yeah. you know, I had no hair on. Uh, not that I have much now on the underside of my forearm, but yeah. I had none on my forearms then. Yeah, 
You got nothing to prove just by burning your arms. No. You ever think about just being in, just know, being in the kitchen here and seeing all this kitchen activity? Yeah, in the course of three years, I came in there not knowing almost anything. I had some kitchen experience, but really almost none. And we started off at, uh, how do you say it? Garmanger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Salad station, basically. Running the fryer, doing salads, maybe a little bit of dessert work. And then work through, uh, we had like a fake wood-fired pizza oven. So there was we'll some made logs. It fake. There was some logs burning, but there's like a big gas <laughs> element in the back, you know, shooting. Are you shooting. kidding me? No, I mean I think that's pretty common, really. Um, gas assist. Yeah. Oh, that's the gas call. assist. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we did all kinds of apps out of that station, and then you come back over to the main line, and uh, I think I went to saute, and then I ended up at grill, and then maybe for a little bit I did some expediting. Right there at the end. What does that mean? We're basically, you're, you're just kind of helping everybody out and you're just calling tickets and, and just making sure that all the food that is on one ticket is going to be coming out together. Like you look down at the saute guy and you're like, hey, dude, I need, you know, two linguinis and a capellini and a orecchietti coming up in two. And then you look at the grill guy and you're like, you've got those two hanger steaks coming, right? Yep. And then on down the line and just make sure that it's all coming together. And you're working with the front of the house expediter that's then kind of doing that and making sure that their waiter is there to then move that food out to where it's going to huh. go. So as a true restaurant man, Jesse, when you hear him saying that, do you, are you thinking like this guy knows what's up? <laughs> that's spot on. It's spot on. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's a bigger restaurant than ours. I mean, that's, he's got an inside expo, an outside expo. and a, you know, Yeah, on a, a really a busy line. night. We sat, I think, just over 100. And I think on a really busy night, we, could, we would really busy. We'd do 400. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you need you need all that that org- this people organizing to get food out on either side of it. So. Do you, are you getting nostalgic sitting in a restaurant hearing like the clanking and clacking and whatnot? When we w- we got to a little tour last night through the restaurant, when we walked down the line, I said just automatically went behind some people and just said <laughs> behind you. You know, at that moment, I felt a little nostalgia. You did. Yeah. One day I was I think I might have talked about this, but one day I was with Yanni and we were pulling out of a coffee shop and. A guy drives by pulling a drift boat, like a youngster pulling a drift boat, and it was clearly like a guide headed out in the morning. And yeah, he's like, "Oh, here he is, you know, heading out for a day with a client." And I asked Yanni, I said, "Does that make you nostalgic for your guiding days?" Thinking that it did. He's like, "No, taking some other asshole out for floating <laughs> the same stretch of river you floated for the last thirty days." <laughs> Uh. I must have been feeling a little bitter that morning. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the guide, the, 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 the human egret, talk about, I want you to cover the regulatory structure, and I want you to talk about how he's also a commercial gigger and what that all means. Yeah. I mean, flounder is a, a pretty interesting topic, I think, too, because there was a real problem with their populations a few years ago. Parks and Wildlife went in and implemented a uh, November moratorium on gigging. Okay. Um, during their main spawning run, um, and, and run that implies movement. Yeah, uh, they they supposedly run from the shallow bay in a flounder. I mean, if you, if you're familiar with the this is the southern flounder, the southern flounder. If you're familiar with, I mean, the way it's it's structured, it, it's a very flat fish. It can I've I've gigged them in probably three or four inches of water before. Uh, but so they're in really shallow marshy bays. Uh, maybe five or six feet deep at the most, and then they run out into the Gulf to spawn. 
uh, oh. in really deep water. So why are they vulnerable out spawning in deep water? Uh, because they go in, as far as I know, really deep water. And they're hardly ever fished for in the, the actual bay. Um, you'll hear about people catching them off of jetties and piers a little bit, especially ones that are, are a jetty that leads out into the bay. They'll have to run through there to get into the gulf. Uh, but they spawn supposedly in very deep water, and they're just not really fished for out there. I, you know, okay. the vast majority of the fishing happens in the bay for them. But people hit them hard when they're moving. Hit them that. hard in November during the run with rod and reel, and also with uh, with gigging when and they're so, migrating out. Right, and they're they're just more active, and they're they're in big numbers, and you can target them at passes. So like where there you know, there's water. Uh, moving out into the Gulf, and so there I was, got you. There was uh, so they become vulnerable that way, right? So they closed down gigging, and they took the uh, I'm sorry, the recreational limit down to two for rod and reel for the month of November, and then there's a uh, a lower limit in the first two weeks of December as well. Huh. But gigging opens back up for those two weeks, but you can only gig two flounder. So uh, Captain David offers he offers like, discounted trips during that two weeks. Uh, and that's a, oh, never mind. I was going to say it's a really good time to go. <laughs> <laughs> That'll. <laughs> oh. Anyway. It's, hor- um, it's a horrible time, right? Yeah. To go. It's a horrible time to go. <laughs> it's uh, windy. Yeah, it's windy and cold, and uh, the flounder are really small. And he uh, charges a lot more. Charges a ton. <laughs> yeah, charges that December rate. Uh, but it, it appears that the uh, Parks and Wildlife uh, moratorium has worked i mean at least that's from my perspective you know I, i'm not a biologist and i'm not a flounder guide but the the stocks seem to be up there seem to be a lot more flounder now uh so kind of a success story as far as that goes um and i think that the the gigging guides down there they do all right without having november you know out there I and mean, they can also go out and if they have their commercial licenses they can go and get uh flounder to sell it into the the wholesale markets and they I believe the boat limit is 30 flounder a day, and they can also gig sheep's head and black drum. And so they go down there and, and uh, they fill boats with that. And that, you know, we, we buy some of that, not necessarily from Captain David, but we buy some gig flounder here and there. Uh, but it, it goes into fish markets and along the coast. Uh, what do you do with the, how do you like to fix the ones you get? Flounder? Uh, my favorite way is to uh, stuff them. Scale them. Captain David showed me the best trick. But, and this, this is an amazing trick for scaling any fish. Is he uses what's called a curry comb. Are you familiar oh, with I was comb? told I was told to ask you about this and had it in my notes. Yeah. Well, no, I had it in my head. Yeah, he uses a curry comb. Because Miles Nolte was telling me to ask you about this. Yeah, but I said a curry comb. And he's like, not just any curry comb. Huh. Well, I'm, I'm not familiar with the varieties, but... Well, uh, t- explain to me what it is because I don't know. The thing you use to brush a horse. Yeah, it's got those jaggedy. It's got those jaggedy. It looks like a souped-up hacksaw blade, kind of bent. Mm-hmm. Four of them stacked on top yeah, of each like other in a half circle. Kind of concentric circles with the handle on it, um, and that that'll take the scales off of a fish with so much speed. It's incredible. And any any fish that have I've, you ever scaled like the, a bluegill? The spiral. Yeah, absolutely. That one. That's the spiral one. Spiral steel horse curry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Miles Nolte, much as I love him, <laughs> that's just a regular Joe Blow curry comb. He was he was convinced. He thought I had a souped a, up. He thought he had a custom job curry comb. Yeah, yeah, like an artisanally made. Uh, yeah. Handcrafted. So he likes to scale fish with that. 
Absolutely. It's incredible. It'd probably I be mean, a little bit too big to just run that on a panfish. No, absolutely. You could do it. No, I've done it. Absolutely. Order, order absolutely. yourself a couple of those, yeah. I will. Use your company card. You got to use a, one of those gloves, those cheap, like, fish cleaning gloves, you know, that are kind of like cut gloves. I use I them more just for gripping fish because they, you know, any slimy fish or just being able to grip. But if you were using the curry comb, it's really nice to have that glove in case you miss. Because, I mean, it's not going to hurt you, but it will scratch your hand up. So he good. likes to scale a southern flounder. For, well, you asked me how I like them, and I like to stuff them. But when you scale them, he's, they've got like little mini, mini scales. True, true. Densely packed. Yeah. But you don't, I mean, you got to take those off if you're going to oh, yeah. rust them No, off. I always skin them. Oh. No, you know, we, no. used to, we, we used to catch them, we used to catch them uh, just fishing the, 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 the Gulf Coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. We would catch them kind of in a mixed bag with other stuff, just casting out in the troughs between the beach and the first sandbar. You just lay bait out there. We'd catch, you know, now and then you'd catch southern flounder. Right. And I never did anything but skin them. You cut them off in quarters. Oh, no, just talk about how you do it. Uh, just scale the fish. I mean, I like to, I just, I got it. Uh, I like to leave the heads on. Okay. Um, because when you cut the head off, you expose the tops of the fillets to, I think, too much dry heat. And so I just prefer to leave the head on. Um, you pull the gills out? Uh, yeah, gill and gut. That's the easiest fish in the world to gut. They have just tiny uh, intestinal cavities. It's for the, for how big that fish is. It's remarkable how small their digestive system is. But so you just go in there, gut them, gill them, scale them, and then you just run your knife along the um, the lateral line. Yep. Which is on the top, the the kind of the apex, the, the, of, the, 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 yeah, the, the of the dark side of the dark side the dark side of the fish. And then come in with a fillet knife and just uh, run along the rib bones that run. Oh, this is a this is an exercise in like manual writing along the rib bones that run you know parallel to the cutting surface almost almost to the fins on either side and just open up a big pocket in it yeah i got you. i leave the bones in i know some people will try to will pull the bones out and make it kind of boneless and then just stuff that with uh usually crab blue crab and then lay it back on there lay the lay the so, so sorry the you're stuffing between ribs and top fillet or ribs yes, and exactly top? okay exactly i got an idea for the listeners for the listeners, put, put your hands together. Uh-huh. Or, uh, or they can buy my book and look at the pictures. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, plug your book, man. Yeah, it's the, all, everything I just described, I just realized. <laughs> I, got, I got pretty pictures. You've already written it out once. <laughs> With captions, yeah. <laughs> plug, um, your, plug your book. Yeah, uh, a field that came out um, in 2012. came out a long time ago. Uh, and uh, a, a field, a chef's guide to... Uh, preparing and cooking wild game and fish and so flounder is covered along with blue crab and you show how to stuff flounder yeah and and uh to be clear captain david is mentioned by name in that book as well oh okay so there you go um but yeah and there's pictures of him but what looking about the, like an are, you, are you stuffing the belly side too why not no no just, just leave the top being. side and then you just leave it and then you uh oil a pan so it doesn't stick to the pan oil the fish season it and uh stuff it with you know just tons of butter uh, I like to put fresh herbs in there, like thyme, oregano. Shitload of crab meat. Bay, all the crab meat you can afford uh, or catch. And, uh, and then just roast it in a hot oven. It's incredible. Or fillet it and you get the four fillets off of it. And, uh, I mean, fry it. I- I'm sorry. But, it, you know, when, if you ask me what the pinnacle for most fish, like the best recipe is going to be fried. I'm sorry. It's just, it doesn't Don't get Don't apologize to fish. me, man. Yeah. I love fried fish with a passion. Yeah. And it's like, I'm hardly ever inspired to be like, I'm not going to fry that. Dude, I'm so <laughs> like, one of the things that just like 
pains me about the world is this sort of idea that that there's something sort of wrong or that needs to be apologized about in certain circles about frying fish. I agree. Uh, tell us about the uh, your breading because I think that's you know it varies a lot yeah, in circles. Yeah. It's going to depend on the fish. Now, Are we moving on to frying? Oh well, just frying. Well, I have one can I ask him one last quick sure. follow up? Do you think it would work to take your strategy? Have you handled halibut much? I'm sure you have to your restaurant, uh, man. It, yes, I have. It's been it's been years. Could I you have. take a 10 pound halibut, say, and do some big, super dramatic version, or would you never get that thing to roast through? Absolutely, you can. In fact, it's been done. There's a really beautiful cookbook by Francis Malman uh, called Malman on Fire, and he stuffs a, uh, a halibut, uh, probably about a 10 pound halibut with pe- I believe it's peppers and onions. Olive oil. Cuts it the same way you're talking about. Absolutely. And then wires it shut and then roasts it over a fire. So, I mean, yeah, like phenomenal preparation. You could, you could completely do that, and you should. But on your stuff, Flounder, you're probably going to end up eating the scaled skin. Yeah. Right? We're it's, on that. It's a little sticky, but, I mean, I like that. Yeah, it's a good way of describing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sticky. It's Doesn't like it? a sushi wrapper. Yeah. Or that, oh, yeah. that seaweed one. Precisely. Is, imagine it was a little bit thicker. Yeah. It's, it doesn't really get crispy, um, but I like to leave it on as an insulation, and I like the way it tastes. And I, I like, you know, I like chicken feet and things like that a lot. So, like that sticky texture is is, is fine for me. You like sticky buns? Yes, that <laughs> that's different. <laughs> a Go ahead, bit, Yanni. A little bit different. <laughs> Uh, but on a 10 pound halibut, you probably wouldn't be chewing through that skin, I'm guessing. I'm not sure. You know what you can do with that skin? And I've done it. <clears throat> is, uh, I stole this from Jack Pepin. Jacques Pepin. Because he does it with some other fish. But uh, Jack Pepin, he, was ta- he like makes little crispies. So you take the halibut skin and just cut it. And you start to do it with flounder skin. Basically, you're making. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, man? Chicharrones. No, there's like a there's like a snack product that I'm trying to think of. It's the um, the dimensions. No, I'm trying oh. to think of the, the the dimension of the cut. Quarter inch wide strips, two three inches long. Yeah, what you is can that seize, snack product called? Yeah, you can, can season them. You can season them and fry them and put them on salads. Uh, there's a, a gijon. There's a little strip of fried fish. Uh, no, no, I'm think it's, it's like a, a cut. It's a French. There's like name a thing. It comes in a container. It comes in a container like. Uh, is it? It's not like shoestring fries. No, what the? Yeah, it doesn't matter. But it's a a nice thing to do with skin. Like you know, if you if you let's say you broil a salmon fillet on the skin, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people when they go to serve themselves, they just sort of remove their piece of fish and leave the skin. And so when it's all done, you got a piece of foil or whatever with the whole damn skin from a broiled fish stuck to it. Mm You can take that off, put it on your cutting board, and just cut it into quarter-inch strips. Mm-hmm. And then cut those down to two, three inches or whatever, and just throw them in hot oil. Season them, salt them, and just throw them in hot oil. And they curl up and turn into a little chip. Yeah. That's a pretty good little chip. Sounds I'm sure like you know a, what I'm talking sounds, about. I mean, like on a pig, it would be a chicharron or a, a crackling. Yeah, exactly. But you don't understand. You understand everything I'm saying except this. 
There's a snack product that is the dimensions of what I'm talking about. Dimension. Nothing to do with the snack taste or appearance. Dimension. It doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. I don't know if it is actually sold as like a salad garnish or if it's just sold as like a potato chippy kind of a thing. Yeah, you know it's, what else would be exactly like? It's exactly that long. It's got like a little wave to it. Yeah. I can't even tell you what the hell it's made out of. doesn't it's matter. A potato or a corn I described product. it so clearly. Yeah, we get it. I got it. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith who over recent months I've become friends with, and my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners 
a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Okay, ask your stuff about Brian. A, oh, ma- bre- a master breading. chef's perspective breading. on bread. Breading. Breading. I mean, it's gonna it's really gonna depend on the fish, like catfish, um, a lot of freshwater fish, like cra- crappie, white bass. And specifically catfish, I do a mustard batter where we'll, I'll take... A batter? Well, I mean, not a batter. Well, it's, it's mustard and buttermilk. and Dip it in that and then dredge that in cornmeal. So technically, I guess it would be a dredge. Okay, I, so hold me back up now. Here, here I am. I got a dead catfish laying here. Yeah. Let's just get serious. <laughs> There's a dead catfish. Yeah. Flopping around still. Yeah. Not even dead. Yeah, oh, yeah. come on. We can't even skip to, <laughs> can't skip ahead to the Okay, here filet. I am. I got a catfish filet. There we go. Okay. Do you trim them nice? Uh, I will. If it's big, I'll take a uh, fat and bloodline out of it. Okay. But if it's small, I won't. And I love the bellies. Like, uh, if catfish is bigger than two or three pounds... I do what I call like a three fillet method where I, I pull off the fillets off the sides and I flip it over and I take basically everything from the throat to the to the anus, skin that on both sides because it's got that crazy silver on the top yeah. side. Um, and then you'll get two really nice big uh, chunks off of that that I think have the best texture on them. And if you if you get a, a flathead, absolutely. Oh, and it's like chicken tenders. It's like chicken tenders had sex with fish. Flathead belly is, yeah. is amazing. I think Parker described it as white gold. White Sorry, gold. white gold. Not not like chicken tenders had sex with fish. It's white gold. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, either either way, you should you should attempt it. And uh, so catfish, yeah. So mustard, uh, buttermilk. Hot sauce, if you want, and then straight into fine cornmeal from there. And but, then but fry. slow down because you're making a little like a you're combining your hot sauce. Yeah, all the explain liquid. it to me like I'm a child. Okay, um, the hot sauce in about equal parts buttermilk and yellow mustard. Okay, um, in a bag, in a bowl, whatever. And you take your you're fillets. talking prepared mustard, not powder. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like uh, catfish too. I cut into strips. I don't like to do whole fillets. I like uh, a lot of uh, a lot of crispy, like a thin layer of crispy breading to them. But I don't I don't prefer to do whole fillets. Uh, cut that into strips. Uh, go into the buttermilk, mustard, potentially hot sauce mixture. And what's then your, what's your hot sauce you like? The one that we make here. <laughs> also, the mustard we make here, but. Um, you, uh, I don't know. You could use anything you want. I think, uh, what is it, Crystal, that Louisiana, uh, that, that hot sauce out of uh, Louisiana is really good. What do you think about Frank's? Yeah, fine. Frank's. It's good on chicken wings. But I'm saying, like, uh, is that sort of, let's say a guy was just down at, a, at, at the local rural grocery store. Frank's and French's all the way. Okay. Yeah, Frank's and French. I'm trying to cover. Then, for, I'm trying to cover for that feller. Yeah, and and he's like, oh shit, they don't have buttermilk here. Just just use some milk, man. Just like use some milk to thin it out. You're fine. Okay. Just, so he got some Frank's, some French's, his kids' milk. Yeah. Equal parts. Yeah. Okay. Uh, season your fish with a little bit of salt. Toss them into the mustard buttermilk mix, and then you, it's really imperative that you have fine cornmeal because because coarse cornmeal 
is not going to stick very well. It's going to come off, and that's that's. And that well, let me tell you the real problem, find, man. Let me tell you the real problem with coarse cornmeal that it turns black and is bitter. Yes, yes, yeah. It's, it's, it's no good. And it's I mean, it's crunchy. For, it winds up being like you get little pieces in your mouth. Yeah, it's good for I guess some cornbreads and things like that where you want that texture and you, you're adding a lot of moisture and fat into it. But no, no good for frying. Oh, but you know what also works really well is masa, like masa arena, which is dried uh masa that is then turned into a flour and it huh. is by nature very very fine and it's i mean it's a, it's a cornmeal product that's been nixtamalized so it has a slightly different flavor but it's very good and sometimes we'll do a 50 50 mix of fine cornmeal and masa um, but if you're in a pinch and you're in a place that sells masa arena and you can't find fine cornmeal get that you familiar with that brand red mill yeah, Bob's Red Mill. Yeah. Yeah, they sell a fine corn. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If you're in your grocery store and you see like a little, they'll kind of always keep it all together. But he's, that company is like the company that has all the crazy flour. Yeah. Yeah, another yeah. one I like to use uh, use for the uh, squid is uh, rice flour. Rice flour. Is a nice breading. Okay, it's yeah. Super light yeah. and airy. It complements that squid nicely. But I still feel like even with them, it's like they always have the coarse and the medium. But finding that fine ground, it's hard. I don't know what the deal is. I have to, I ask and just have them like order in six bags and buy it. When I see it, I buy a bunch. Yeah. yeah. And there's yeah. actually, there's a, there's a grocery store here in town that has very fine cornmeal in bulk. And so I, I go there and buy I used to buy it in bulk and I'd buy big bags of it. And then if I can't find it like that, then I would check around and see who carried that Bob's Red Mill. Yeah. Because he's got medium and fine. Yeah. Um, but re- regular uh, run-of-the-mill cornmeal is not great for frying fish. Right. So there we are. We got our little mustard hot sauce. Yeah, but what, about this, what about this tone I got off you about the batter? What's, is, there, is there something wrong with the batter? I'm just not a big batter guy, man. All battery. And then, like, <laughs> like, it holds so much oil. And then the batter comes off. And there you are, just like a naked hunk of fish because the batter fell off. Sure. I mean, just yeah. makes me feel like I'm at Long John Silver's. But it can or be, it can get, be at great. Long John Silver's, you get through all that batter and realize there's not a fish in there. <laughs> they right. just they like batter, batter. They like get a drive in a batter and batter that, and then fry that, and you open it up, and it looks like like a fried pancake. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. I, I like it sometimes. I think I kind of really like fluffy white fish. You know, like with the big old greasy. I think it has to be done right. No, I mean, about it, when you make a batter, it has to be a little thinner than you, than you think it needs to be. It needs to be ice cold uh, before it goes into the fryer. The batter has to be super cold, and the fryer has to be super hot. What's hot in your mind? Uh, I would say pushing 375. Okay. Like really hot, and cut your piece of fish. You think that's really hot? That's my, that's my go-to temp. Yeah, that's hot. For fish? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, oh, that's pretty man, hot. Because, man, they're, they're nice, like, Perch fillets, everything like that, three seventy five. Yeah, it's a small. I mean, it's a smaller. Fillet yeah, but you get like it's like whap. Yeah, crispy. You open it up, it's still like nice on the inside. Yeah, yeah. You're talking you like, get, a, like a minute in the fryer. Yeah, right? you can't go. Point. You can't go like wander off and do something else. I mean, you're right. standing there staring at it. Sure. Yeah. I, but I think yeah, a good batter, and I mean, we make ours here with just I mean, beer and choose a, a good flavorful beer, flour and baking powder, and the baking powder makes it expand and it helps with the crunch a lot on it too you got to fry it hot and you got to fry it long enough and then it will you you'll get it i mean you'll get a good textural experience out of it if it's done just right but that said i totally prefer my cornmeal uh sometimes i will 
bread, fish with flour, egg wash, and breadcrumbs. Yeah. And do it that way, especially if I'm going to serve them sauced. Like, put a sauce on top of the fish, like, when I serve it. Like, one of my favorite dishes is a Veracruzana sauce. So, like, a tomato, olive, pepper, some chilies, garlic, um, cilantro, parsley sauce. And I love to do fried fish that's been breaded in breadcrumbs. And then it's got that sauce on top of it. It holds up really well. I mean, you can use panko or dried bread or whatever you want. But uh, there are some times where I will, like what we call standard breading procedure of fish, or flour, egg, and then and breadcrumbs. That's yeah. good, too. Well, or flour, egg, then cornmeal. Sure. Because if we're doing, like, catfish sandwiches, like where it's a big filet. Because, mm-hmm. see, when you cut it, like, if I had to do it one way, I'd always cut them up small pieces and then cut at that angle mm-hmm. on a bias is that mm-hmm. what i'm trying to say bias, to yes. create edges right mm-hmm. so they crisp up nice but when you're doing a whole piece you have less surface area and so you feel like you're not getting the the amount of breading you deserve because the surface area is bigger so then if we're doing like big chunks of catfish to make a sandwich then season the filet egg or sorry flour and then you got something for the egg to stick to, mm-hmm. then in the cornmeal, and then fry it. And then you get a hearty crisp to help because it's such a big piece. Right. Like a shell. Shit. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Okay. And then you put some pickles and shit on that sandwich. Mayonnaise. Yeah. yeah. Well, we make a little tartar. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, like chopped up pickles. Yeah. Make it make like a tartar, but then put more pickles on it and tomatoes on it and I, some Franks. I'm into, fr- I'm into <laughs> fish sandwiches. I love fish sandwiches a lot. So, yeah, yeah, you got my attention. Fried catfish sandwich. When you're, when you're doing your cornmeal to fry a fish, do you like to put some paprika and stuff in there to make it look nice? I usually don't. If I anything, I'll put black pepper in there. I do like a good amount of black pepper in there. Do you season the filet or season the mix? That's a great question. You season I mean, with anything that you're going to fry. This is, this is a pet peeve of mine. Is you season the thing you're going to fry. You don't season the powder that you're going to then dust onto it and get some approximation of seasoning on it. Like, well, I mean, how much, how much, if you put a handful of flour into, or a handful of salt in a couple, into a couple cups of flour, how much salt is going onto the flight? You have no idea. Why don't you just season the damn thing you're going to fry? Like the way you like it. Yeah. Just, just put the salt on there and then put the flour on it and you then you're done. That's it. And yeah, that's, that's a good that's, tip. It's a oh, good way to make another, me angry here. Another fella uh, pointed out to us too, if you do that method where you have your uh, breading seasoned is that the seasoning is bigger pieces than the flour, right? And so when it's just sitting in a bowl or a bag, it's naturally like the bigger stuff, heavier stuff is kind of going to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So yeah. your earlier fillets are getting less seasoning. And then as you get through your breading, right. the shit's getting stronger and stronger and saltier and saltier. Right. Who's telling us that? Parker? Parker. Yeah. It's gravity. Parker Hall. You want to talk about killing some pigs? <laughs> is that a question and, and catfish <laughs> and catfish but i want to know do you ever just <laughs> the answer is yes uh do you ever just go fish like seasoned and then cornmeal into the fryer like that simple no never no i i have trouble making the cornmeal stick appropriately um, I've, I've seen that. Um, I, I just think having that little light coating of mustard and 
that mustard brings acidity, and that's just nice. I mean, with fried fried food, you want something to cut that, and you're mm-hmm. you just you're starting with a with a little thin layer of acidity, and just it just gives the fillet itself a lot more uh, like a spectrum of flavor. I'm having Saturday night fish fry tomorrow night when I'm home. I can tell you, I want some fish to fry. I got a lot of fish. You come over my house, man. We just brought a bunch back from Michigan. Oh yeah, my wife just brought some back from I North got, Carolina. I got so bluegills, channels. What else do I got? And flats, old flats, but fresh channels and bluegills. Uh, while we're on oh, the subject and of and frying, one, uh, one huge freaking smallmouth. Ooh, that's a good fish to eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like his trashy cousin, the largemouth. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. They're pretty it's good. It's a too. better, listen, a smallmouth is a legit eating fish. See, I'd never really eaten them until I was in Canada and we were on Lake Huron and started catching these big smallmouth and out of state, non resident. I could keep, I think, two a day. And uh, we were, all I was catching was that and pike. And I was blown away by how good a smallmouth was. Yeah. Pike, too. I mean, they're a pain in the ass to clean, but they're really oh, good. good. So good. Um, but also, I mean, that's cold water. I mean, you, you can talk about the trashy largemouth, but I think it's just... I'm just joking about largemouth. But I've I do got, think I've the largemouth lar- in Michigan that were fantastic. Yeah, they, yes. we, we used to eat them. We, yeah. I mean, we, we just, it was just like you didn't throw them back. But I feel there's a weed... We used to have... In the lake where I grew up on, where we ate a lot of largemouths off, we had three species of weed. Seaweed, uh, even though it's not the sea, lake weed. Okay. Milfoil, mm-hmm. which is an invasive, a weed that I don't know the name of. And my brother and I, who, who knows the name of every damn thing in the world, he didn't even know the name of it. And we made a note to find the name of it. We still haven't gotten around to it. And the third weed was skunkweed. And skunkweed would be like, almost grows like a carpet, like a grass. Once you get out too deep for the other weeds, there's not enough sunlight, then the skunkweed would grow down there. And when you ate those largemouths, and skunkweed smells like a skunk, unmistakable. And when you eat in largemouths, there's some part of me, like I can taste, when I eat largemouths, I get an aftertaste of skunkweed. Even if it hasn't lived around skunkweed? Yeah. It's like a, a member. I don't memory. know if it's like psychosomatic now. Oh. But a smallmouth, <clears throat> it might as well be a walleye. I'd agree with that. Yeah, smallmouth's good. It's also just titillating to talk about eating largemouth bass in Texas because it's so, uh, people get so uh, upset about it. You use that word titillating often? No, well, I mean, I think that using, my favorite words. using the word titillating to describe eating largemouth bass <laughs> is like uh, exponentially upsetting to. Uh, to people that they don't like to eat large, yeah, because they don't like eating largemouth bass. And they don't and they, like to hear that. They word don't either. like that word. Yeah, they don't think they don't think anybody should use it's that. It's not word, the so. word. It's not a word they yeah. throw around. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> like it's, when I'm watching uh, Bassmasters. No one says titillating. No, no, no. I'm <laughs> the gonna, commentators never. Yeah, I think I might just like publish a recipe like titillating fried <laughs> bass. <laughs> Uh, what else on fish? Have we covered everything we want to cover on fish? I, before we get off of frying, so oh, I, I'm, I'm really in, interested. Uh, how how do you how would you treat a shrimp? A shrimp for, uh, for, that's going to make it go to the fryer. Oh, a fryer fried shrimp. Yeah, um, that, yeah. Um, as far as the breading process, you can. I mean, batter. Not really. I don't prefer a batter. I think uh, 
breadcrumb, like flour, egg, breadcrumb is probably my favorite. You, um, butter flour, egg, breadcrumb on yeah. shrimp. Yeah. Um, you can also do the uh, mustard buttermilk. Not to be a, you know, just like a two-trick pony, but that's, that's also very good on shrimp. I like to butterfly them. I think that extra surface area is really good. Fry them super hot. And, man, it, like, it looks like you double your yield when you yeah. do that to some shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> I love fried shrimp. Um, my daughter also is a big fried shrimp fan. Um, do you look down on people who make coconut shrimp? No, I've had it before. It's fine. Um, Dude, I love that stuff. It's man. good. I mean, yeah, it's it's it's. I love coconut though. So yeah, yeah. I, I it's kind of cheesy. It is a little. It's not cheesy. It's like cheese like in it. Nineteen. I don't put cheese 19 in Nineteen eighties. Right. Applebee's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Style. I love it, man. Now, I worked at a, a in a place on a place called the Idler Riverboat. You ever go there, South Haven, Michigan? I was in South Haven. I was spitting distance from South Haven last week. Yeah, I bet that thing's still floating. It's a really cool don't know about barge. It. Vincent Price used to own it. It was in like the 1904 World's Trade Vincent Fair. Vincent Price? Yeah. Do you know what's a weird story, man? There's this guy that uh, was up in Southeast Alaska and looted a bunch of totem poles. Long time ago. People would go up in the 20s and stuff and loot totem poles. Um. I remember they like really tried to track down one of these totem poles they realized it was just outright stolen. And it wound up being in the possession of Vincent Price. <laughs> of course. Funny you mention him. Yeah. But go on. Um, I think they, we felt like we had a fairly sophisticated menu for South Haven, Michigan at the time. And this was probably like 94-ish. Um, and that coconut shrimp, man, it was like a top seller. It wasn't an appetizer. It was like, it was an entree that we had there at the time. <laughs> and we sold the shit out of it. People loved it. So you look down on it. I can tell. No, no. I mean, I'm not going to order it. I'm going to take just a regular, you know, standard breaded shrimp over that probably. But I mean, a little coconut shrimp, what's that? Some kind of sweet, sauer, hot little orange sauce. marmalade yeah. dipping sauce. <laughs> yeah. Like some kind of like chunky jelly uh on the, yeah i get it I, I would i would eat it absolutely i'd eat it no i don't look down on it no. i got one more fry question for you all right are you like a peanut oil man well okay it, it kind of depends on where i'm at now for years here we fried everything in pure beef fat and i am i'm a big fan of if not all beef fat in the fryer at least some for flavor and texture it's like i can't really describe what what texture that imparts even frying crappies absolutely frying donuts we would do them in beef fat now once that cools you get a little bit of that you know that wax just similar to like what you get off of of deer fat how are you buying that volume of beef fat uh we get it from our beef producer just there's no other place for them to sell it who renders it you render it we render it it smells amazing no it doesn't so it you're sticks. buying you're buying fat, Cases rendering fat. it out, and then making rendering out gallons of beef fat. Yeah, we still yeah we we still do and pork fat, but uh, I mean pork fat, beef fat, and then some kind of high temperature oil. Any of those works. Like if I'm, how hot can you get beef fat? Not that hot. Not not. I mean, three seventy five is really pushing it. It'll darken it. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, peanut oil I think is is great for frying. Um, it's expensive man it is expensive uh and then for frying here these days we use a non-gmo canola oil 
which works pretty well. And you too. like that? Yeah. Less expensive than peanut. Uh, well, we have to consider peanut allergies. So, you know, even if it's just a one person in a thousand, it, it, can, it can kill them dead, you know. Uh, many restaurants won't, won't use peanut oil. Oh, anymore, that's interesting. Just because the, just the, the, the tenacity of that allergy. Yeah. what's the when you're using beef fat like if someone fills up their deep fryer with beef fat deep uh, sorry they fill their deep fryer with beef fat and they cook some fish for their buddies mm-hmm. and then they put it on a shelf somewhere yeah, it's kind of it's if you fried a lot of fish it's cached it's volatile yeah it's just so it's not like done. peanut oil where you can strain it and then right. store it away and cook some yeah. more fish next week definitely one of the downsides to that i mean you can strain it and use it a little bit but uh, a lot of the time for frying fish specifically, I will use a mix of beef fat and at home, if I'm frying a beef fat and peanut oil, Oh, okay. which, I, which I like a lot. And then how hot can you get the beef fat? Uh, pretty much like 375 because the peanut oil really helps bring that, that, that uh, smoke point up on the beef fat. So it works real well. Ready for a major gear change? Yeah. How uh, we were talking last night when we were eating in this restaurant. Um, first off, tell people what we ate last night in this restaurant. Um, let's see. We had a, it's, it's beginning of summer. So we were, we started off with some tomatoes. We had a tomato salad with avocado, uh, with the venison machacado, which is a dried venison, uh, axis finished and shanks that have been, uh, shredded and then dried or salted and dried and some chilies, mint and cilantro and lime. We had the pork cheese with the grilled mushrooms and bread and a little ginger marmalade and uh, we had the bread too the mesquite sourdough uh which is made with uh ground mesquite flour sourdough and pecans and served with whipped lard uh domestic pork fat with orange zest in it um i'm trying to remember now just one more uh one more thing wasn't there some rhubarb and something i'm sure I don't remember that. In the whipped lard. Yeah, there was some rhubarb in the whipped lard. Right. Oh, that was with the bread, yeah. yeah. I think uh, you just covered all the apps, though. Oh, the Parisa. We had the raw oh, right. The raw axis with the, the fresh chilies, lime, onion, and cheddar. That's all. It's ground and then kind of mixed up and served with the butter crackers. And uh, that's, that's a real Central Texas dish right there. It's a raw... I mean, usually it's beef, but I, I love it with, with venison. Your menu has my favorite sentence of all time on the menu where it says, everything is from around here. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, our, our sourcing here and is, uh, is, is pretty strict. And I think these days you, you hear a lot about local foods and sustainable and this and that. And uh, we have, since we've uh, been in business, which was 13 years, uh, sourced uh entirely i mean we could say locally but I'll, I'll i'll say within the boundaries of texas uh much of it coming from much much closer than that so all of our even down your damn olives even the olives olives olive oil all the dairy uh the butter um texas wine t- uh, all texas wine list um and the, all the texas wines are, are made with texas grapes which is a, an issue here there's a lot of wineries here that use grapes from somewhere else which i don't consider to be a texas wine um uh, our beers are all made here um all the meat 
Um, and we're, we're very selective about where we get meat, uh, whether it's domestic or wild. Um, and then seafood comes from the Gulf or some freshwater when we have access to the, you know, the very rare wholesale catfish trot liners. You know, they're, they don't have websites. You know, it's, it's really hard to get a hold of wild caught freshwater fish anymore there's a few fisheries i think up north and you know where you can still get crappie and walleye and yellow perch and it's just not like that out of canada yeah yeah yeah. um so freshwater fish is is tricky but you know shrimp and blue crab and and gulf fish is is widely available and then all of our fruits and vegetables uh are whatever's in season or whatever we've been able to preserve and uh so like we won't have lemons or onions certain times of the year and we just deal with it but uh, it's fun. It's a really fun way to, to write a menu and really fun way to serve food. It just makes it simple. And we uh, talked about this before, but it's confusing to people when you say that you serve wild game because people know that for the most part you can't sell wild game. But Texas has so many feral, has right. so many non-natives. Yeah. So talk about like the path of how a deer would wind up here in this restaurant. An axis deer yeah. or a um, meal guy or whatever. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I mean, to speak a little more to that is is that these are invasives, and I think that these are great things to eat. Uh, as when he, Whenever you eat a feral hog or an axis, you're not, you're not contributing at all to anything that had to be fenced in or have a vet bill or anything like that or, or, or be fed corn or anything like that. It's just you are, you're just using something that's, that's detrimental to our environment, our, you know, our region right here. And so... The way we get the, the hogs, I'll start with those, is they have to be trapped live. And then they're brought into our processor live. Uh, an inspector sees them, sees that they're healthy, they're killed. He does another inspection, liver, kidney, um, inside of the rib cage, the membrane there. He looks for spotting, things like that. Uh, and at that point, uh, they get a blue stamp and they're state inspected. And so at that point, they are just a swine carcass and we can buy that and then sell it and so we get uh about three to four hundred hogs equivalent of about three to four hundred hogs a year between the two restaurants let me, and, let me stop you on that a minute yeah do you remember the name of the episode we did where we, where we hung out with the texas hog trapper he does commercial hog trapping the podcast or the uh no the tv show lone star pork this is the title it's on netflix uh let me check it is mm-hmm yeah, just to see that process of trapping hogs. Yeah, we ate all of ours, but he sells them too. We're yeah. going. So the hog, that's how that's a hog's path to the restaurant. The hogs, uh, and and you buy it when you buy it. Uh, give me a ballpark, like on the carcass. If someone wants to buy wild pig meat, what's the what's the value of that stuff? It's expensive. I mean, you're it's basically expensive. paying the same rate that we pay for heritage hogs, like really well raised. Okay, so it's not bargain basement shit. I wish it was. I really do. And, it, and it's ironic <laughs> that it's not that somebody goes up in a helicopter, kills 60, and lets them lay in a field, and then we're paying a premium price for the ones that have entered the food system. But I get it. I mean, there's people got, you know, they got gas money to get out there and check the traps and, and do all that. So then there's a, there's a pretty inefficient system out there to get these hogs out. But, I mean, one of my goals is to like come up with a more vertically integrated system where we can you know trap pigs process pigs and turn them into food that's more readily available to people i mean you could feed a lot of people with the three million hogs that we have here in texas 
especially since we're supposed to kill two million of them every year to keep their population static, which we're not doing. Um, and so I think there'd be there's a there's a, a lot of conversations that can happen about that. Okay, the deer um, that that's really cool in that there was a very a pioneering company called Broken Arrow Ranch, and they started years ago by taking an inspector with them. And they had two shooters shooting suppressed rifles. Uh, I believe now they do most of their shooting at night. And they have a refrigerated trailer with a guy that follows them. And they go out into the field and shoot these animals. Inspectors right there. They do this crazy electro-stimulation where they basically hook them up to a car battery. I got one of those machines, man. Yeah, I've never opened it. Bleeds them out really quick, and then the inspector's there for the whole processing, and then they, they chill it down. They have X amount of time to get it back to their, their big processing hub outside of Kerrville, which is west of here. And, uh, and then it's sold all over the country from there. And there's another business now. And they shoot Neil Guy. They shoot Neil Guy. They shoot Axis. There's also uh, Psyca, Fallow, any of, the, any of the invasives, any of the exotic species. No whitetail, to be clear. I mean, sometimes somebody will come in here and be like, you can't serve venison. That's illegal. And I'm like, it's not a whitetail. And it's perfectly legal. Trust me. I'm like, I haven't been flying under the radar for, for 13 years on this one. You know, there's, I'm sure Game Ward would love to nail my ass if, if I was selling whitetail. But I am not, sir. So it's, uh, it is all exotics and invasives, which is, uh, which is great, I think. You know, I think it's like you, what you're also getting is a really natural protein. I mean, these animals are out there living in, on these big properties. And in the case of Axis and Nilgai, these are mostly free-ranging. These are not sequestered beneath or behind a high fence, even a, a huge ranch. Most of these are, because they're all over the place now and spreading. Um, and, and the Nilgai live a very natural life. They don't, they don't eat corn out of feeders or anything like that. They're grazing just like they should. And uh, it's, a, it's a really good pro- protein, and we're able to get uh, quite a bit of it. You know, they're big animals, too. So 800 pounds. Yeah, a big one, a really big bull. I and mean, they're monsters. They're so. I was eating some of that the other day. So, uh, some buddies of mine, I was over at First Light and they had a little wild game deal. Um, and one of those boys had just been down to Texas and had some, some nil guy meat. It's good, man. It's really good. And it, yeah. even the big ones, it doesn't. You don't see a real drastic difference between a, a, a mature cow and a mature bull. No, that'd be the thing. I mean, they're like, you'd be just as happy to have that as elk. Yeah. You know? No, I think it's, I mean, up there with elk. Elk, yeah. Axis, and Nilgai. But I, I think Axis being is, is the best that I've had. I really like it. Um, they're big body deer for this area. Um, so, I mean, they're way bigger than the hill country deer. Uh, and so you get a lot of meat off of them, and they're, they tend to be pretty fat and they're just they're so just naturally tender and delicious very mild they're also really good for restaurant applications in that your general customer is not going to be put off by the flavor of an axis it's very approachable do you uh have you had sika deer yeah or sika yeah yeah you like those yeah i think they're pretty good man yeah i mean fallow um uh pear david's deer uh don't know what that is yeah it looks like a big goofy white tail like a monster uh we get all kinds you know our, our guy in fredericksburg will just call us and be like hey i've got this carcass hanging and sometimes even elk you know there'll be an overpopulation of elk in an area and they'll go out there and trap a few and 
and uh, bring them in. And so we were able to serve elk. And elk, na- we're native here at one Yeah, time. we just had a big conversation about it'll be on this. Uh, you, you can listen to that episode with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Director Carter Smith. We talk about the controversy around how Texas manages and handles elk, which is legitimately, in my mind, controversial. Yeah, I don't know much about it. There's, I mean, there's a, listen to the episode. Yeah. Uh, here's one for you. We talked about this. What is Texas cuisine? <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's a good one. And I, I, I think. I mean, you get an- different answers from different people, of course. Um, I think that you know we we cook with all Texas ingredients, and I mean most other cuisines in the world have been defined by their ingredients. Uh, so, like, if you're Give me an in, example, well, in southern France, like. Let's you. You're gonna eat duck. Um, you're gonna cook with duck fat or walnut oil. Uh, you're gonna have some pigs. You can have uh, some freshwater fish. You're gonna eat beans, um, onions, herbs, things like that. So I mean, the cuisine is very defined by that. And just to put that into contrast, let's go to let's go to Vietnam. And there you're gonna have a, a lot of fish, a lot of rice, a lot of herbs, a lot of uh, vegetables that grow in a hot climate. And a lot of fermented and preserved things be- because of said hot climate. And so that really influences the cuisine there. It's, it's spicy, it's pungent, it's very bright, it's very flavorful versus something in, in France, which is going to be a little more austere, but equally delicious. But the, the place really is influenced by what's available there. So in this country, or, you know, in Texas, I think we went at it in reverse. And, you know, for the past hundred years, we've been able to get whatever we wanted. So we could, we cooked with whatever we wanted. And so we lacked a super definitive cuisine in that our ingredients never forced us into anything. Uh, it's like defining our cuisine here. And there, that's not to say that we don't have things like barbecue or more importantly, the, in, the influences of, of immigrant cuisines here, which I think are, are, the most important thing about what our food is. So in central Texas specifically where, I mean, we're in Austin right now. And so that's almost kind of dead center in the the mass of Texas. Um, There's strong influences from German uh, culture, Czech culture, because there's a lot, a lot of immigrants from Germany and Czechoslovakia came here in the 1800s. And then really Mexican food, you know, Mexico being three and a half hours to our south, uh, a huge influence. And uh, also as far as just the, the weather and what we can grow here, you know, uh, the, the peppers, the tomatoes, the onions, things like that thrive here. So and we used to be part of Mexico. I mean, it was, we were, I mean, until Texas independence, you know, and 1836, you know, we were part of Mexico and then we became a state nine years later. And it's the, that influence is very, very profound, which is why I was joking earlier that we're a Tex, uh, Mexican and German restaurant. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it kind of just vacillates between the two. But I think it's good to, you know, give respect to both of those. And if you go south of here an hour and a half to San Antonio, and then it's, you're, you really feel that influence a lot more. It's beautiful. It's in the architecture. It's in the food. It's in, it's in every aspect of the culture. But there's also German beer houses or beer gardens down there. And, like, uh, 
men's choirs, which is a, a thing in, in German communities. Like you'll you'll see these right? ancient buildings that you know men still get together and sing, and there's a bar. I can see Yanni doing something like that. I've done a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing to be there. And then next door is uh, a mariachi band. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, that's what I think Texas is. I mean, and that's not to negate any of the other cultures that have come here. Also, you know, uh, Vietnamese culture is, is really strong. Um, there's, you know, just like with any metropolitan area, you get people from all over the world. And I think that's really important to embrace that. And then what we do here is we just use the ingredients that we have and then take any idea from anywhere else. Because I think that's like, that's open source right there. We, we, we can use any idea that anybody ever had about food and just apply it to the ingredients we have because those are our resources. I'm not, I'm not at all trying to imply that we define Texas food, but I, I think that since we are, for lack of a better term, such a melting pot at this point, that it's, it's nice to just give in and say that's what Texas food is now. You know, we've got some distinct dishes like chicken fried steak, um, which is basically a schnitzel. You know, I'm sure that's where that came from. Yeah. Barbecue things like that. Um, crawfish boils, you know, come from a little east of here. You know, that's Cajun, but it's a big thing here. Fried fish. Um, game. I mean, cooking game, I think, is also a really key ingredient to that. But You mentioned schnitzel. Reminded me of something I wanted to mention earlier and forgot to mention when we're talking about seasoning meat for you before you fry it. Yeah. We're making turkey schnitzel um, for... Bo Jackson, the athlete, yeah. who's a, he likes to cook. He's a very opinionated cook. And I made him a piece of turkey schnitzel. Uh, and he ate it. I said, would you like some more? And he said that he would. And I go to make some more. And he goes, but here's what I would like you to do. <laughs> and one of the things he wanted me, he noted that I had salted his schnitzel after it was prepared. And one of his three requests was that I salt it before. And he had some other things. What were the other things? I got to know now. Because number one was valid. That he felt that the oil was a little too hot. Oh. That was one thing. <laughs> which, we, which we know from the last hour of talking that Steve likes to run hot oil. He thought, the, I, can't remember, I can't remember what the third one was. Oh, you you got to remember the third one. This is pretty fascinating. I really can't remember, man. I can't remember what the third thing was, but he had like several suggestions. The, the two, the turn, turn the burner down slightly, salt is first. But it was like just unusual um, to be cooking someone something. I usually am watching, and when I see something I don't like, I just keep it in the back of my head, unless it's someone I know very well. Right, right. Then I would say like, you know what, y'all, yeah. you know, fella could try. Yeah. I appreciate how forward he was <laughs> and what a, how knowledgeable about schnitzel he was. I, mean, I had no idea. Very opinionated cook. Yeah, that's cool. But knows how to cook. Yeah. No, the next morning, I missed dinner because I was out hunting still. Um, but uh, the next morning, he whipped us up some scrambled eggs, man. And scrambled eggs are one of those things where a lot of people can really butcher them. And you end up with some dry, slit, you know. And uh, Bo made some nice, silky, you know, like proper moisture level, you know, eggs. Yeah. Did you know that I make uh, the best scrambled eggs ever? <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah. 
Low and slow. Low and slow. Yeah. The best ever. Not French. for everyone. Yeah. French, but the French best, style. But the best ever. Yeah. Do you stir constantly? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, I learned it from the great Escoffier. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I said. French style. Yeah, that's exactly like that. It's almost like a, a lightly cooked egg custard. You just keep it moving. Yep. Yeah. Um, you got to have a rubber spatula yeah. that conforms, that easily conforms to the contours of one's pan. Yeah. Because you can't be having it. And you got to have a good pan. Yeah. I, my main egg pan, I hide from my family. <laughs> I keep it with the Dutch. Don't say it. <laughs> I keep it in the, though they're not, they're not that ambitious. I keep it in the Dutch oven section of the cupboard. Right. Where no one, they just don't go. Well, why would they ever need to go in that area? It's just not, you know, my wife hates to cook. So she's never going to wander over to the cupboard that has like Dutch oveny stuff in it. So I keep it there because when she carelessly scavenges around for a pan, she naturally goes over to where the pans are and then ruins those pans um, <laughs> by like cutting stuff in them and, and whatnot. And then I keep my scrambled egg pan secret. Tell, tell us about this scrambled egg pan. Teflon coated? You know Diamond? The, I've heard of it. The company Diamond? It's a good pan. Expensive. That's why you got to hide it from people. Can't be having... What do you think a Scoffier used? I don't know. For a pan? I don't know. Not that. Because, yeah, he and didn't not have... a rubber spatula. No. You know what? Here's the weird thing. You know the opera singer um, Bernhardt? I think Sarah Bernhardt was her name. Oh. Turn of the century. No. Turn of the last century. She didn't believe in eating garlic. Brightman? No. No. Um, damn it, Yanni. One sec. Yeah, Bernhardt was a French stage act- yeah. actress. Yeah. Oh, stage actress. He had probably had an affair with her. He was married, but maybe he had an affair with her. She wouldn't eat garlic. People had like a garlic phobia, and Escoffier was a proponent of eating garlic. And he kept secret from her that he would pierce his, uh, uh, take a big clove of garlic and put it on the end of a fork and stir her scrambled eggs using a garlic-tipped fork as a spatula. That's amazing. And she would love his scrambled eggs. And he would never tell her that he used a garlic clove to move it around the pan. Look at that. Deceptive. But. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place. And if I see something I don't want... Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's 
features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Yeah. What's your favorite animal protein and why? Ah. It's either well, I guess I have to have name a favorite. You don't have an opinion on this? I, well, I mean, I'm, I've got a top two that I'm trying to determine right now. Oh. I'm going to have to say. How about what are your two favorite animal proteins? I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, <clears throat> feral hog and axis. But everyone knows feral hogs no good. You can't eat the biggins. They're all dry, you're, right? Yeah, I feel like you're baiting me. <laughs> uh, you can absolutely eat the big ones. One of the best ones I ever had was 300-pounder. Yeah. Uh, the reason that people think you can't eat the big ones is because nobody tries them. It, it's, it's funny how, how that works, how when you just announce that if they get over 100 pounds or whatever this arbitrary number, this line in the sand that you've drawn with feral hog size, 
once they get over that, then you don't try them, and then you tell other people that they're no good to eat. And that's rampant in all wild game. Yeah. There could be multiple generations that haven't tried a hog over 100 pounds because somebody back there said, right. yeah, once they're over 100, no good. And so their sons and daughters didn't do it, and then that information yeah. was passed on. And I feel like that's something that we battle. Absolutely. And like, people are, as a brand and as a people that are trying to like explain shit is that we're just battling like, uh, what do you call that? Um, misinformation? Bullshit? I don't know. Oh. Yeah, but bullshit that's like... Go, like Has been, inertia. Been, Cultural been, inertia. Yeah, been with us for generations. We, yeah. Bias. It's because people are inherently lazy. Yeah. So if you tell them a thing <laughs> that allows them to be lazy... Right. We recently heard about a, a antelope guide. He, American pronghorn, okay? Antelope guide in Wyoming who guides about 100 antelope hunters a year. Mm-hmm. And they're line to people is that it's not good. Right. And I can't remember the number, but I think close to 100 of these clients food bank it. Right. Don't use it themselves because the outfitter doesn't want to deal with it. Right. And just tells them it's no good and they accept that it's no good. They Well, they accept when it. In fact, it's I mean, one of the finest things right. running around. I mean, I, like, I think tons of stuff's good. Anything with a hoof on it is pretty damn good. It's yeah. like a good hooved animal that tastes like a hooved animal. It just means that they don't have to take it home and pull it out of their freezer in a year and a half after it's been freezer burned and throw it away. Because, yeah. I mean, I think that's what happens to a lot, a lot of a lot, game a lot. meat, a lot of fish, too. Um, that's why when guys, there's a guy who's uh, actively trying to, like, establish the value of the wild game economy. Um uh, and look at the resource, like the resource of wild game in Canada and wild game in America, and, and what it does to the food system and how valuable it is. And I keep wanting to ask him if he's throwing in all of the, all of the lazy sons of bitches who bring it home, don't take care of it, knowing they're eventually going to throw it away, and then throw it away because it's now quote freezer burned. Right. Right, which is a little bit of a myth too. Which is also a myth, but because right, you could say, it, or we let, instead of calling it freezer burn, we could say that one, it's not, or two, you didn't wrap it right. Right. But not to steer it back to hogs, but when no, people, please. When this people, is what we're here to talk about. When people are given open season on something, and, and when you're when they're told that killing them is a good thing, you know, it's all, it's an altruistic act at this point here in Texas to kill a hog, and so they become. I don't know. They're like they're like zombies and Nazis. Like it's you have you have all the uh, go ahead that you can possibly get to just shoot <laughs> like, as like, many. Like Ben says, man, you have permission to take the gloves off. Yeah, yeah. And so, and at that point, it's it's just become <laughs> it's it's fun to go out and kill them and and a big boar. And if it, the slightest justification not to physically lift it after you've killed it. <laughs> Is you know it's great. Oh, I just I just did some good. Not like I went down to the uh, homeless shelter and uh, cooked for everybody today. Good, but you know I I still did I did my part today. And I, I, that's the other we laugh about is like dudes who uh, go prairie dog hunting. Right. They're like, well, man, you know, you know, I do it for the, you know, do it for the ranchers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and like, if you went and asked a rancher, if you said, hey, man, um, I'm here. 
What do you need done today? Fix that fence. <laughs> That's gonna be <laughs> yeah. low on the list of chores. Yeah. Like, Shoot. You know, see that old see that barn? Can you clean that all out? Yeah. <laughs> Shoot a, a ninth of a percent of the prairie dog population on my uh, on my land. Or clean my house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah. I it's it's a thing. And I mean I, it, it bugs me to no end, you know. And I understand that all hogs can't be kept. You can't retain all of them. Uh, if you're going up and you're controlling them from a helicopter, absolutely, there's no way. But um, but if you're if you're going to tell me that you're not eating them because they don't taste good, then I mean I I've got a lot of anecdotal evidence to the contrary. Well, you've um, got a restaurant to the contrary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something you can do with them, and we and it, it just so happens that we shoot. I mean, most I mean mostly boars. Like I'm trying to think of the past few hogs that i've killed personally they've all been boars you know it's just it's not because you're selecting for boars no absolutely not i'll select a sow every time if I, but you those solo boars just tend to move around a lot more if we're hunting at night we see boars yeah if one pig comes into a field yep that's a boar um it's going to be rare that a sow is going to be on her own um but if if there's a group that comes in absolutely i'm picking out a sow and absolutely i'm picking out a pregnant sow because they have the most fat on them, and they tend to be the best. That, you know, that's the thing you hear people say, a wet sow. Mm. But, man, uh, I got one one time, and there was two problems with it. Two problems happened to me. Uh, one was social, in that I was with a friend of mine, and she wasn't a big hunter, hadn't been around it much. And here I am gutting it, and it's getting kind of dark out, and I'm gutting it. And I'm getting into it, and I'm kind of like, nothing to see here. Oh. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, look over that way. Yeah. Because that could be unsettling yeah. to someone. Absolutely. The second problem is that this thing must have gotten into, like, I was all excited because I knew this thing, like a wet sow was good, right? This thing must have been eating something dead it found. Hmm. It tasted. You know, like, sometimes you get, uh, you get black bears, like, and, and when we're hunting black bears on the coast... You'll get black bears that they have so they've been eating so much rotten salmon. I have no no reference well, to that at all. But yeah, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like you'll eat it and it tastes like fish. To right? the, to like, the po- yeah, to the point where you smoked a ham that one time. Remember that? Yeah, here's a good story. You Probably smoked? told a thousand times. But I'll tell it one more. I'm smoking a bear ham at my cabin in Alaska, and I go to and I we shot it like it was early June. We shot, and so salmon run, salmon run hadn't happened yet, right? So not this year's salmon. We get a bear, and uh, and I go to my neighbor to borrow his smoker and smoke the bear ham in his smoker. When I return the smoker, I said, man, you need to clean the, clean that smoker. It's got so much, like, old salmon oil in it that... It made my bear ham taste like like rotten fish. He said, "I've never smoked a fish in that smoker. There's never a fish has never been in there." And that was the first time I had that experience of a bear that just tasted like fish. Right. Which a little bit has gradually turned me off of coastal black bears. But anyhow, this thing tasted like it had been eaten. Like I feel like it had gotten into something. Right. You know, and, and it does. It definitely happens. And I'm not. I'm not. I would never say that all hogs are are delicious. But th- that's the only one I had that ever had any right. problem. Oh, yeah. I, I find it to be very rare. Yeah. And like I said, you know, we're we're going through 
hundreds a year and it's it's pretty it's it's very infrequent that you find one that you would classify as inedible i tell the story a lot about snaring a, a sow one time um and it, uh, simultaneously while while that snare was running we we shot one of the same exact size they could have come out of the same litter one was uh they're, they're probably about 80 pounds uh both sows same fat content and everything and we butchered them both ate the shot one the next day took home the snared one and ate some of that the next day and the one out of the snare was inedible and just uh, it just had to be stress yeah i was going to suggest that yeah i mean it, it was definitely and i think that affects them a lot as well uh when you're snaring them are you buying snares or making your own out of garage cable i, I won't snare them anymore after you don't that. snare them anymore just, yeah it was uh, you know i don't i don't need to um and i just it wasn't for me i just didn't like she she was just like so tired and worn out when i got up to her and i was just like i you know we did it because we needed a hog on the ground we were filming something and had to absolutely get a pig down and we were just hedging our bets with the snares but i i wouldn't do it again got you i met someone in hawaii who snares wild cattle i don't know if it's legal or not whoa yeah yeah snare cattle yeah that's made, heavy cable. I made sausage out of a, of a South Texas uh, feral cow one time. Custom order. This guy came in. And he had his doctor told him he couldn't eat any fat or salt, and he brought me these like, grocery bags full of uh, frozen bits of like bone and meat from a feral cow in South Texas, and asked if I could make sausage for him, but no fat and no salt. <laughs> Which the, the answer would be no. Well, I, I, I was like, well, I mean, I, I mean, I was like, I'm gonna just be up front and tell you the sausage isn't gonna be good. This guy is just—he was so desperate for any. He's just like, I don't care. I just want sausage. I mean, I can't eat anything now. And I was like, all right, I'm, I made it for him, and it was—it was awful. What'd you cut into it? We just put as many like spices and. and oh, so you didn't try to put some kind of like substitute for fat or, no. bi- or binder in there no oh, okay. no we just we just made a hundred percent ground lean, ground meat sausage dry the flavor can be good but the texture and the dryness gets tough flavor flavor might have been good with a little salt yeah <laughs> there was none of that in there either so uh a wet sow that's the right word right pregnant sow i don't know why they call them wet is wet not nursing oh yeah, that's what, what i yeah. thought yeah. oh no okay then what's, what's the word for one because what I've heard is you want them before they start nursing. I was calling it a wet sow. Right. That screws my whole story up. Pregnant damn sow. Pregnant. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Like, like if I see a sounder and there's a there's a a nursing sow that's obviously trailing some some little pigs, then and there's a pregnant one also, which there's typically going to be one or the other or both. I mean, there there there's only 23 days between when they give birth and when they go back into their estrus cycle. And they're going to get bred. I mean, if there's a population of them around, they're going to get bred almost immediately. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I mean, feel kind of bad. I mean, it's just like, what a life. I mean, you, that's the, I mean, the break that you have with piglets is 23 days before you're bred again. And then a little less than four months later, you're giving birth again. And those first ones are just, you're weaning those first uh, pigs off too. So, but I'll, I'll pick a, a pregnant one. I mean, it sounds, it's, it's harsh, but um, they have better fat. And I just think they, they eat a lot better. So what's number two next to pigs? Axis. Uh, axis deer. Uh, I think that, you know, again, from a invasive perspective, they're, they're the best thing to eat around here. They're, we've seen a real explosion in their populations in the last year or two here. And, I mean, to really put that into 
uh, a perspective is the fact that I get invited to shoot Axis now. I've had a couple of people be like, hey, I, I've, there's just so many of them on our property. We come out and shoot one. Whereas if you go back five years, it'd be like, hey, do you want to come shoot an Axis? It's $1,500. Okay. And, but also, I mean, that's where, how we got into this problem is the vast amount of private land that we have here in Texas. And then when people either stocked Axis on their land or the Axis showed up one day, it was very valuable commodity to the point where they didn't hunt them down into a manageable size population. And then one day it's like, oh, we should have been shooting a lot more of these and maybe not charging as much. This is obviously my perspective on it. But now, we're, I mean, we've gone from charging to inviting. And if you drive west of here, there's one highway that goes out to kind of the epicenter of where they were initially brought. And you'll see two or three roadkill um, just in a in a thirty forty mile stretch of highway. There, there's and you'll see big herds of them, and they 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 can be in huge groups, and uh, they they outcompete the whitetails, and they're starting to spread south and west. And so I think it's definitely time to get in front of those too. I mean, they're never gonna never gonna have the impact of a hog, uh, but I, I think that it's should I shoot a whitetail or should I shoot an axis? Uh, if I'm going to be out there, you know, getting meat for you know, myself, it's like, I think an axis is the answer right now. For your own personal use. Yeah. 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 Um, what do you like uh, when it comes to butchering? What do you like working with the most? Um, hogs are fun because they're all, they're all different. I like that because, you know, I'm, I'm my second book is almost complete. Right. And, and we're, it's all about feral hogs and the approach that we've taken on it is how to, what do you do with the hog that you've got on the ground, you know, without overcomplicating it because you can't, there's no recipe for feral hog. It's like, well, how big is that pig? Is it eight pounds or is it 320? You know, there's a huge difference in that and applying uh, the same concepts to every sized hog or, or the different fat contents that they can have is going to lead to uh, mishaps in the kitchen and then you're going to be less apt to eat them in the future. So I think like clarifying how to eat pigs is really important. And I think it's also a lot of the fun of it. What I really enjoy is that when, you know, you get a pig, whether you've shot it or they, or, or they've brought it in here, you don't know what it's going to look like. It could be a hundred pounds and lean, or it could be a hundred pounds and have two inches of pure acorn fat on it. Uh, and, how that hog looks is going to inform the decisions you make in cutting. Are you going to cut chops off of it? Or are you going to throw the whole thing in the grinder? Uh, never get bacon off them. You can. Really? Uh, you know, this is a very common question in my, uh, in my, the feral hog butchery classes that we do is that, can you get bacon off them? And uh, the answer is yes, but I've probably seen less than 10 hogs ever that I'd say you could get legitimate slicing bacon off of, to okay. be clear, like bacon that you could cut into a strip and fry and serve with eggs. Um, if you want bacon-flavored product, then even a smaller, thin belly, if it's only an inch thick or three-quarters of an inch thick, you can take that off and still cure and smoke that, and then you can have bacon bits, absolutely, if it's got enough fat on it. But if you want like a legitimate slice, a strip of bacon to wrap around a dove breast or whatever, then it's going to require a very, very large, very fat pig. And so it's typically going to be a sow. And you don't see sows in the uh, you know, live weight 
you know, probably 250, 300 plus, I think, before you start to get uh, bacon that's going to be worth it. Got it. And so it's kind of rare to see a sow of that size, although they are out there for sure. You came in to hunt. You, you were into food first and then hunting second. Mm-hmm. So, like, food brought you into hunting. Yeah. I always fished, too. Oh, I mean, you always was, fished yeah, growing up? Yeah. And for me, like, hunting brought me into food. Right. What, uh, what are your feelings about the intersection of those two things? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really excited about where it is right now because I think that it's, like, it's, it's come so far and that people think about food when they're hunting and fishing a lot more than they did even three years ago. Uh, you go back 10 you know, years and it's I, I go i don't agree but go on well i i think well I'm, I'm coming from a perspective of being here in texas where i mean everything was was is treated in the same way feral hogs may be eaten doves may be eaten but they're only eaten one way venison backstraps are eaten cooked one way mm-hmm. um, just from looking at the divergence of recipes alone yeah okay I, i'll agree with that variety like the variety of preparations but i think it's happening in a specific demographic certainly yeah the variety uh, of preparations but, but, but go on uh, it, i'll talk about my view on it some right. other day and you'll probably know a lot more about that specifically um i i feel like people are i feel like they're keeping more of their animals or at least experimenting a little bit more which is great um I, I hope that you know the same thing applies to fish, but you also hear a lot about you know people you know you talk to guides and they don't think that their clients eat their fish either. They want a limit, and then they don't eat the fish. And I, I think that's you know it's a real shame. Like, yeah, not to eat fish. Wasteful, man. Eat fish as as much as you can while it's fresh. Eat it. Just just don't stop eating it until you have to freeze it. Is you know my policy. So that's the intersection. Oh. Well, um, like, do you, do you think the two, like, do you think the food, sort of like the, the food community and the hunting community are in dialogue? I do. I think that there's, I mean, just think like, about Do you guys it. come in here? Let me ask you this. Okay. Do you guys come into your restaurant who are lifelong hunters and they come in because they just want to get a better sense of what can be done with the stuff they hunt? Yeah. Is that like a client? Yes, absolutely. They're doing I mean, research. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we get people, we, I, I used to do a lot of different classes, you know, domestic pork butchery, uh, seafood. Now I only do a feral hog butchery class just because it is the one, it's in such a, a more extreme high demand than anything is else. Is that right, really? Absolutely. And we, we sell uh, about two a month here at the restaurant and then we I, I travel around and do that same class um over and over and over. how many students come into each class uh here at the restaurant we have 10 uh so you're running 20 people through a month on average and just get, just here really yeah and it's and we sell that out no problem because that's i mean it's the elephant in the room that's what everybody wants to know about i got you and uh, they, it's, it's just cutting. And is and it mostly hunters or mostly people who would like to go hunting? It's 80. Wait, I'm sorry. What? Okay. Is it mostly people who are like, man, I've been hunting pigs my whole life. I'm going to go find out how to better handle them. Yeah. Or is it mostly people who are thinking I would like to go get a pig, uh, but before yeah. I go get it, I want to learn how to handle it. I'll say that 80 to 90% of the people 
that come to the class are in one of those two categories, and then it's kind of a, a split between new hunters and then established and, and established hunters. I ask everybody at the beginning of the class who here hunts or has access to be given feral hog, and nine out of ten people will raise their hand. Okay, it's very rare that somebody shows up just to watch a feral hog butchery. And then I ask where their land is, just because I like to know what kind of hogs we're talking about. Like, is it on the coast? Is it in South Texas? Is it in the pecan groves northwest of here? Um, to kind of get an idea of what you're dealing with. Um, and almost all of them have, you know, are hunting. And so I'd say it's a, a very high proportion of those people are hunters. And a very high proportion of those hunters have been hunting for a long time. Do you feel like with the restaurant and with the classes, is there a... Um thing you're getting at like if you die they'll chisel something on your <laughs> tombstone like this man taught loved, demonstrated loved pigs man did he love pigs uh, with, you know this man would never shut the fuck up about wild pigs <laughs> i think uh yeah i i i'm pretty i'm you know i think that's my the feral hogs are, are really a cause of mine. You know, I really like to promote the eating of them. And I, I, I just see them as a resource. And I, it's, a, it's, it, like, it's a resource. And in, the more we use of that, the less of another resource we use, less of someone else's resource we use. And it's, it's just a, a win, win, win. You know, and it's like I'd love to debate a vegetarian on the ethics of eating feral hogs because i would like to hear the argument it's like well do we put them in a big feral hog preserve uh, well yeah that's what we do with wild horses yeah and they would argue that it's a that you're ending the life of a sentient being and Absolutely. causing it suffering and that that sentient being shouldn't be blamed for the fact that we turned its ancestors loose on the land. Correct. Now, you get, but here there's, we are. There's a, yeah, so then that's where it gets tricky. But yeah. here we are. So we got to reckon with this. And that's where people are, um, that's where those arguments start to fall apart. Right. Because they'll be like, well, yeah, because they're overpopulated. Yeah, because they're non-native. And you go like, well, what about the sentient part? Because mm -hmm. I don't think that you feel that way about grizzly bear hunting, right? And right. they're sentient too. Right. And, and so they're like, I'll end that sentient life because I don't like that one. Right. Um, we were talking about eating crickets last night. Yeah. And the, the movement to eat more insects. Right. And I was like, a bite of crickets, you're killing so many things with each bite. Yeah. It's too much death. It has a lot of weight. Yeah. It's like all those little souls, hundreds right. of them. Hundreds of them in one piece of cricket flour. What about caviar? Yeah. That's... Just I guess pop, that's, pop, a, that's a little stickier. Pop, 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 pop. <laughs> death. Yeah. <laughs> death upon death. Oh, yeah. So uh, plug, plug, um, we're going to wrap it up because you got to leave to go fishing. Yeah. Plug, <laughs> plug your, uh, double plug your book, plug your restaurant, and plug your class. Yeah. Um, and then plug that guy again. No, don't plug him again. Yeah, I'll see him. I'll see him soon enough. He's going to be pretty excited about this oh is that right this mention oh yeah, yeah. he's he's a, a really wonderful guy too um he's one of my you know if you go with guides and they're just not they're not fun you know it's the worst 
uh, he's he's just genuinely nice, and he obviously loves what he does. So that's another plug for. Uh, well, you'll have to hit rewind to to, to hear the name of the guide service. Uh, the book is a field uh, like like I said, we we put that out um, about seven years ago uh, that that came out, and you know, it, I I look back on that as being. You know, when you look back on anything, you're like, oh, I would have done that differently. But what I like about that oh, yeah, was I was sure, fairly man. new to it. And I think that having a perspective of being fairly new to something gives you um, a, a good deal of empathy to other new people that are new to it. That's a good and point. So I, I like that. Yeah. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm proud of it. And uh, the, the next book, I, I think, is, is much more refined. We know a lot more about our audience with this one. Uh, and it's all feral hog. Um, and we're, you know, we're in the final kind of design stages of that book and, uh, we're real proud of it. It's got a lot of recipes. It's got a lot of, um, detailed butchering diagrams and a lot of information about what to do with pigs. It's, what are you going to call it? Uh, it's called the hog book. There you go. Yeah. Not, the, not the wild hog book? No. Well, a chef's guide to hunting, preparing and cooking wild pigs. Gotcha. That's okay. the subtitle. So just trying to keep it simple and. You know, like I said, we've, we've got the different categories of hogs that are going to be in there that you, you'll come across from a tiny pig to a big boar, what to do with all of that, um, how to combat the gaminess. Um, Is it organized? Tiny pig? Small pig, medium pig, large <laughs> sow, large boar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, which is what I find to be like the general categories that make it more approachable. So yeah. you get a big sow down, flip to that chapter, and it's going to go over what you need to or what likely you'll you'll want to do with that hog. You ever hear a dude Clayton Saunders? No. He's an interesting guy. Divine Meats. Divine Meats. In, in oh, Divine in Divine, Divine, Divine yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I know. Well, I mean, I, I didn't know his name, but definitely they're a huge processor, uh, yeah. mostly export processor, I think. For wild hogs. Yeah. Man, that dude can cook a pork shoulder, though, man. Yeah. Holy shit, that stuff is good. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, I, I mean that is a, a clearinghouse for pigs in South yeah. Texas. It's not. We hung out with him. We brought we, we brought some of our own pigs in there. We caught him up, and then he cooked us some. Cooked the sow shoulder on his yeah. pit with a mop. Yeah, we actually put his mop in our cookbook, like Clayton Saunders Divine Meat Mop. That was good. Yeah, that dude's good. Yeah, I mean they can be great. He knows a lot about pigs too. Yeah, yeah. You should hang out with him someday. Yeah, I definitely want to connect with him. So you plugged your book. Yeah. You plugged your next book. Tell people about your restaurants. Uh, in Austin, uh, we've got the two places. Where we're sitting right now is Daidue, uh Butcher Shop and Supper Club. We've got a little meat counter here. And then, as we kind of discussed, like uh, our, our focus on local ingredients. Uh, menu changes daily here. We're open for lunch and dinner. And then downtown, we have a, a little taqueria, uh, like dead center downtown, kind of close to the river. It's in a food hall, and it's a small little spot. It's got... Uh, a little wood-burning grill, and we just serve a pretty small menu of tacos um, and a couple little sides. But it's, you serve access deer and nilgai and wild pig in there? There, it's a uh, feral hog and nilgai okay. down there. We don't have any beef on the menu at all. It's uh, We do a, a, a venison taco. It's, it's like I said, this tiny little menu. We've got some, some good chicken on there, shrimp, uh, mushroom, two feral hog tacos, and a venison taco. And that's pretty much it. What's that place called? Daidui Taqueria. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So the Italian word followed by a Mexican word. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's r- ridiculous. I've, I've, I've dug, uh, I've, I've made my bed. I got a lie in it now. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, those are the two restaurants. And then we have uh, 
are the third branch of the business is the new school of traditional cookery. And that's mostly what I focus on. And that's classwork, butchery demos, um, kind of like hunting cat camp catering services where we uh, will come out for however long you want, a couple nights, and we cook every meal. If you want to provide the venison or the hog or the turkey or the fish or whatever, we'll, we'll just, we're, we're ready to improvise and do anything. And then we do classes during the day between hunts, typically, you know, like, what do you want to learn about? Well, we got, you know, we caught eight bass out of the pond and somebody shot a turkey. Cool. Bring it on. That's what's for dinner. <laughs> and then we'll sit there and do as much as we can. We have a, a van that's basically just a road show that's got anything that we'll need in it. And we can uh, improvise based on what you've got. And we'll uh, just try to bring our perspectives and help uh, people in, improve their cooking and processing, things like that. So, Man, that sounds like a fun day at work. It is the best. It is absolutely the best. And then we do some public stuff, too, where people can just sign on and we'll take them to a ranch that's a partner and I'll, I'll guide out there. And so, I mean, that, that's an amazing day. You get up, you guide somebody, maybe they shoot their first deer, their first pig, and then you, you cook them lunch and then you do a class and then they sit down and eat with all the guides and have a big dinner at the end of the day, you know, based on what we've got. And, uh, it's an it's a amazing job. I'm very lucky. But that's primarily what I do now besides kind of bounce between the, the restaurants and um, is, is organizing these things. And we, we go all over the state and probably next season even beyond. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. How do people find that? Uh, it's all on the Daidue website, D-A-I-D-U-E. Uh, if you Google that, it'll come up. And uh, all three of those businesses are on there and all the information and uh, you know, press and, and different packages that we offer. Hit us with the proverb again, the Italian proverb. From two kingdoms of na- from the two kingdoms of nature, choose food with care. Yeah, like that. Got any final thoughts, Yanni? Dang. So many. I don't have anything organized. My final thought is we should introduce, <laughs> introduce uh, that's, that would be my final thought. Oh. Go ahead. Cringe <laughs> <laughs> Schneider. Cringe Schneider. Been sitting here. Yeah. Patiently. Yeah. Not saying a damn <laughs> Thing. I was trying to figure out, you know, the best way to slide in. Didn't want to bring. Oh, did you want me to do like a flat out intro early oh, on? No, well, <laughs> I just wanted to all of a sudden have your voice come in and, sh- and surprise people, like where there's an intruder. <laughs> Crin's our new podcast producer. Yeah, working on all kinds of stuff. Yeah, including what I now think is the. Have you listened to Cal's Week in Review? Mm-mm. It's the best thing on the internet. All right. It's the best thing that a person could possibly get for free, and it's better than 95% of the shit you could buy in this world. I will, I will uh, listen to it on my way to the coast. All you need is 20. You'll be able to burn through. It's 20 minutes long. I got three and a half hours to kill. Your daughter will like Well, it. there's what, seven episodes? Yeah, 20 minutes long. Yeah. Or so. It's the week in review. All right. My kids love it. I'm on it. My, it's my kids' favorite show. Yeah. Because they like the sound effects. Oh, there are those who would have you believe that the sound effects are annoying, <laughs> but they're not because it makes kids like it. Okay. Uh, Cal's Week in Review. Cal's Week in Review. I, I'm going to binge it. Best yeah. thing on the internet. Yeah. All right. Oh, I did have one follow-up question. We got enough time? It's like 11 right now. What time did you say you Tell us something, Chris. Yeah, we're good. Now that you've been intro, don't, don't waste Yanni's right. time. All right. Did um, you like the, uh, your supper last night? The supper was exquisite. <laughs> Do you use the word supper? Supper, yeah. Uh, it's a supper club. More likely dinner, but yeah, appropriately supper. Um, it was it was incredible. It was like a whole 
explosion in my brain. At one point, you hit the table and used the swear word. I did. I did. (laughs) She hit the table and used a dirty word. (laughs) I did a little... uh, It was so good. did a little happy dance. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, I think what you're doing here, Jesse, is incredible. It's like like an artist's studio combined with a laboratory. And, I mean, for me, it's just everything on the menu. There's so many things on the menu. You know, I think the average person doesn't know you you can eat that. Right. And that's kind of what that exposure is, you know, that it's not just the the standard stuff in the grocery store. There's just so much more that is um, edible and, you know, delicious. Um, and it's just a whole kind of education. I think it's really inspiring, should be inspiring for people to look around to see what more they can consume instead of, you know, yeah. the standard iceberg lettuce. Not right. to knock iceberg lettuce. Iceberg's but. awesome. But, I, I mean, I really appreciate that. And that is... 100% our goal here mm-hmm. is for mm-hmm. people to just realize what they've got around them. Yeah, I mean, you have a, a root that grows around here that you said is, you know, you make tea out of. I mean, there's just, they grow mangoes in Texas. Yeah. I don't know if people knew that. I didn't know that. Yeah. But Holy shit, get the mango sorbet. That stuff oh, will that blow your mind. So good. What else you got for concluders? Bring it back or all the way back around. You're bringing her around to taking. Uh, you tell me. You tell me to bring no, her around. No, no, oh, I am. Oh, okay. I'm going to. Because you know I could. I'm do it. setting it up. <laughs> <laughs> Never a doubt in my mind. Um, talking about educating people and using more of the animal and bring it back around to. In the beginning, we were talking about taking hearts and livers. Go on. At, at a gut pile. Go on. Yeah, I got you. Is there anything else <laughs> that you? take out of that animal that's you know forget about the shanks and meats and bones sure. or anything else is hard out of the cavity-ish. yeah and then what do you do, what do you, what would you do with it uh call fat for sure i love call fat in fact we we cooked a uh boned out feral hog country rib yesterday and then part wrapped. of my interruption have you also heard it called uh lace fat or leaf no leaf is different Leaf's leaf is good. different Leaf is the is the, the the waxy fat, the solid fat, on the uh, kidneys and stuff around the kidneys. Yeah. That's okay. leaf. Got yeah. it. And that that's rendered into lard. We definitely if you get a big pig, we that stuff's pure gold, um, and it's a it's a really useful softer fat. It's not waxy. Uh, the call fat, sure, and def- I mean if if we can get it, if it doesn't tear, or if if I need some. And then sometimes the kidneys, we'll pull the kidneys out. Uh, we make boudin. I mean, it's, it's funny because like our, almost our entire OFL cooking game is, is centered around boudin, if you're familiar with that, like that spicy rice and OFL sausage. It's, That's from East to here, right? That's like a Cajun dish. It is. Um, my director of operations uh, for, the, for the school, Morgan, she's from uh, East Texas. She's from China. Texas, so they grow a lot of rice there, and so the rice-based sausage is factors in pretty heavily. And she is the master at making really awesome boudin with any any liver, guts, whatever from from any animal. So we'll take the heart, the liver, uh, the kidneys, and then maybe a little bit of like fatty meat, and and boil that down, and then grind that and add that into the rice. And uh, it. I love that part of the class because people are like, I'm not going to eat that. And then they eat that. And they're like, this is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Kids will eat it, you know, if you don't make it too spicy. And so, yeah, it, it's just funny, but like almost 100% of all the offal that we, we pull just goes into boudin because it's, it's just, I think, the best way to. I got to try that. Yeah, it's good. What about the call fat? 
Uh, I like it for wrapping stuff. In fact, I, my favorite way to use call fat is to cook something until it's tender, like a shank, uh, and then completely chill it down, maybe rub that down with something that's delicious, that's like sweet or sour or fatty or whatever, and then wrap that in call fat and then grill that until the call fat's crispy. Yep. And so you've got free tender meat on the inside. I'm giving away one of the best recipes in the book right now, too. Um, the one we tested <laughs> yesterday. Um, and then you, and you, uh, and you just cook that until it's uh, nice and brown. But there's one secret step that you have to take. Otherwise, it'll be disastrous. <laughs> so you the have step to buy you gotta the take, book to know. You need to yeah. make sure to not Don't have a big away. sip of ice water <laughs> after Along eating it. Along those lines. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it'll be included in the book. You had a secret to cut the waxiness? No, I'm just full of shit. There's oh. no secret. Oh, so that's he, just he, it. He's just, just trying, trying to, to get people to Oh, you're book. just trying to lure people in. Yeah. Uh, oh, go yeah, ahead. We found that with that call fat, you can definitely over, overdo it. You put too much on there, yeah. and like you'll never get it to crisp up. You'll never yeah. get it to really cook through. But yeah, you got to. But I mean, you got to cook and cook and cook and cook it. I mean, yeah. it'll eventually kind of render out. But yeah, it's easy to over apply the call fat, and it's fun too to wrap stuff in that. Yeah, but you're doing two things, right? Because you're sort of basting then the yeah. internal meat with yeah. that the drippings. Oh, it worked like a charm. Yeah. It was really good yesterday. You know that that trick of it's not something a lot of people do is cook something one way. Like braise something down till it's tender and then put it on the grill. Yeah, we do it all the time. Because like deer ribs. Yeah. We just cut the deer like leave them all, leave the whole damn thing on the bone, cut it up with a hacksaw or whatever. Yeah. And then cook them, braise them till they're tender, crock pot them till they're tender, right. and then take them out, put a mop on them, and, and grill, grill them. them. Yeah. Oh my god, and it's good. My first book. It's I a lot of work, right? People are like, oh my god, you know, it's, it's not that much work. No. <laughs> And what's nice too, I've realized you can do it ahead of time. that happens with that method is that um, if you like take them once they're done braising, you take them out of that liquid pretty quickly. A lot of that tallow is being left behind. Oh yeah, man, you render you know, the tallow and, out. And so then yeah. you're not dealing with that right. waxiness so much. Yeah, that's a recipe from my first book called Cheetah Ribs, where we just poach off feral hog ribs that are kind of lean and then grill them and, yeah. and mop them with. Call them Cheetah Ribs. Yeah. Uh, we started doing them in pressure cookers too. Yeah, you get it done quick, but you gotta be careful because if you like, if you go five minutes too long, they'll fall apart on the grill. Yeah, and then you can't get them out. Yeah. So I kind of like would rather take a little bit of time. My brother Matt, he's got it pretty dialed with his pressure cooker, but I'd rather take a little bit of time and get them at just right because a lot of times you're sort of like lifting them out with a slotted spoon and and trying to grill them and shit because they just want to cool them off, fall apart. Do it ahead of time. Pull them out, like of whatever you're doing, and just cool them all the way down. And, and then they get, back up. yeah, they get they get firm, and then you can just slap them on the then grill. Then you can handle cold. them better. Oh yeah, yeah that's absolutely. A good, that's a hot tip, yeah. man. You know we're gonna do a hot tip off. I don't know if you know this. I didn't. As soon as we're done, we're gonna do a hot tip off. You should have saved that. For I should have saved that for the hot and then tip my, off. <laughs> wait, I bet Jesse's got one or two others. Also, because my curry comb. That dude, <laughs> we're gonna do a hot tip off, and you already wasted I'm, all your hot tips. I'm a little. Uh, There's no reason that he can't do these things in this hot tip off. These two items, they could appear twice. Sure. Okay. We'll do a hot tip off right now. It'll go on Instagram later, and people will get to see. They'll scroll back through the feed. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a totally new one, and they'll get to see if you're like a if you're like a one trick pony or not. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna crush you with the tip. <laughs> oh, hell. All right, thank I think you. that was unwise. Jesse, Jesse Griffiths, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you.
If you liked hearing from Chef Jesse Griffiths on our podcast, you have an opportunity to watch him on our new fishing series on YouTube. It's called Das Boat. Stay tuned for Jesse's episode of Das Boat on August 22nd.